There's that. Oh, it's the second one. Can you hear me now? I still can, yes. Oh, there we go. Yeah, well, things get switched around here, and I don't know why. <laughs> You're in a very creative environment. Yeah, I, that, yeah that's, that's a nice word for what it is. <laughs> hey, who? What? Get your hands up. Open. There you are. Don't move. Don't All reach right. for them guns. Take it easy, you galoots. Put away the hardware and relax. What's Greg? in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about... Radio Souls. Yeah, I always wonder how you would reward the innocent. Let's fade that whole thing down. Hey, it's Roddy Mysterioso here for... Wow, that's echoey. For um, April... Hey, Robert, what is it? April 5th? I believe it's April 5th, that's right. Okay, April 5th of 2015. There's your timestamp. And um, we're live here with... Um, ooh, that's still going. Commenter, poster, um, uh, really cool guy that I met on the Paracast forums called Burnt State whose name is Robert, and we'll leave it at Robert. Very kind of you. It's nice to be here this evening. Is this your second interview on the radio ever, or, I mean, of, uh, of a uh, audio sort? Yes, that would be correct. Second time talking about paranormality. You sound professional already. <laughs> I like radio. I think it's a really excellent medium. I was just reading some more of a biography of... Uh, one of my favorite radio people who was uh, active in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, whose name was Gene Shepard, he used to have a show on WOR right before Long John Nebel. Oh, yes. Yeah. Infamous yeah. character. Huh? An infamous character. Yes. Oh, I'm glad you know about him. Yeah. Well, not Shep well Shepard, I've heard just loosely just from, uh, from media studies uh, pieces, but Long John Nebel gets a lot of... Uh, commentary as you know is kind of an introducer of, of weirdness to to the masses yeah and i i've, I've actually got recordings of shepherd on long john neville's show being interviewed by long john wonderful <laughs> so two people that are very influential to me are I, I guess i'll play them sometime on the show anyway um after my appearance on the Paracast last time, I uh, said, would you like to be on the show? And then you said, yeah, sure. And then the Paracast said, would you like to be on the show immediately after I asked you? And since you're their, I guess, person on their forum, I was like, well, go do their show for us. That's fine. And please don't be mad at me because I didn't want to be influenced by it. I didn't listen to it. 
Okay, well, that's great. That means it'll be totally virgin territory for you. Yes. I, I, I didn't care if we repeated anything, really, because um, the way I do things is different than the way they do things. And plus, I don't know, I, I, I think we have a lot of stuff we want to talk about that probably ranges in the different areas. I hope. If not, who, who cares? You, you'll remember what it was, but you, you can, you know, we'll talk about whatever. <laughs> Sounds good. There were a lot of things you sent me, and I've, I've created sort of a list. I'm sure you've got that same list there. And, got an interesting list here, yes. Yeah, so we can talk about whatever we want to, and we, you know, obviously you can ask me questions too, because it's that's the, yeah, that's the way the sh- that's the way the show goes. Um, I was interested to know because a lot of people they have like a precipitating event. Why do I sound so hollow on this thing? They have this precipitating event that gets them interested in um, some aspect of the paranormal, and you apparently had a few. Yeah, I would say that, you know, one of the shows that really connected for me was uh, the interview you did with Duen Singh and his kind of dis- description of, you know, anti-structural narratives, uh, specifically that the notion of how, you know, within our own lives, um, uh, perhaps trauma and, and precipitating events can lead to, you know, something really exceptional happening. Wow. And, and, and for me, it's, it's really, it's a, it's a series of experiences as a, as a younger child, you know, experiencing uh, alternate realities in those kind of liminal Zones and liminal states, you know, childhood hallucinations, incredible uh, fevers, uh, strange monsters, waking dreams, those kinds of uh, things. But uh, the real culmination uh, shows up in in grade five, grade six, where I have an extremely striking uh, UFO uh, encounter uh, out on an ice rink in uh, the middle of winter. Outside, obviously. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So what happened? I mean, usually when people call in, it's like, I don't want to hear another sighting thing. But you're a guest, and we're going to talk about how that affected you, so now I'm very interested to hear it. So uh, I'm standing on the ice rink with uh, my uh, best friend at the time and his uh, babysitter's uh, teenage daughter, and the three of us are playing uh, two against one uh, on the ice rink. Uh, and he, uh, when it was uh, playing against him, he, he kind of got upset because we kept scoring goals, so he ran inside <laughs> the house. And, uh, and inside the house, we can hear, you know, the, the adults are, are having conversation, they're drinking, they're loud, and their window's open. We can kind of hear them uh, coming through. The, the rink is in the middle of a field in the center of a suburban neighborhood in northern Ontario, and as I'm going after the puck, the uh, the teenage girl that I'm playing with, she steps on it, and I look at her going, you know, what's going on, and her neck is craned to the sky, and I look up into the sky, and there are, in fact, two classic illuminated uh, metallic, uh, almost uh, looking flying saucers that are uh, one's kind of hovering up in the air and the other one is heading towards us. And I remember still uh, thinking in my mind that, oh, oh, I know what's going to happen next. We're going to get abducted, and uh, which didn't happen, which I'm, I'm really appreciative of uh, because I think <laughs> now I, 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 I had enough trauma uh, experiences now to say, you know, paranormal events are the last things I actually want to encounter ever again. Um, but there I was staring at this object that was this impossible object that is coming towards us and kind of hovering above us. And, uh, and then it starts to move towards where the houses are and it's hovering over, I guess, what would have been a power line in the backyard uh, there. And it's kind of hovering over 
the houses and it starts going along the trail of the field uh, past the houses uh, in the backyards of the houses and then it stops over another friend's uh, house over his backyard floating over a large tree in a garage uh, there and um, and then the two of them then it, then that one UFO went and joined with the other one that was kind of hovering up higher in the air I, I, we watched the two of them as they kind of go further down the neighborhood above a kind of corner store area that I can kind of just logistically see in the distance of where it looks like it is and then the next thing you know these two objects just blast off and join the stars and and completely uh, disappear out of sight uh, at incredible speed um so that was pretty profound and uh, and i remember even during the experience there was a lot of you know different things that were happening around us like i could remember hearing uh, somebody from the house you know yell what what's that get get some binoculars which somebody uh, later pointed out uh, when i was describing this that well that makes no sense whatsoever why why would they need binoculars to see something that you know that you see as being very big and large in the sky in front of you uh, and and it really kind of spoke to that notion that uh, you know the experience the ufo experience is, is a very individual it's a very intimate experience it's it's something that happens to an individual and, and I'm sure everybody who, who saw any piece of it, including the gal on the ice with me, probably saw something completely different. Um, but, but what's interesting about the story, and, and I guess this is going to speak to some of the ideas we'll talk about tonight, you know, yeah. the idea of uh, discon- discontinuous reality. And I, I really am a fan of that kind of phrase. I know Duensing brought that up as part of the valet uh, talk. He's got that talk um, uh, the age of the impossible, anticipating discontinuous futures. And, and to me, I think reality itself is a seriously discontinuous event. We just create narratives to make things seem normal uh, to us. And, and later that summer, uh, I'm with an, um, another friend at that house where the UFO was hovering above the tree in the, in the garage. And we're breaking into uh, the house uh, there because uh, my, my friend's aunt is there and, and she never lets him have the keys to go in. He was a pretty wild, radical uh, kid. And uh, <laughs> we're climbing up the ladder into the second floor and he stops and goes, wow, look at that. And he looks out across to the garage, and I look out to the garage, and, and there I'm, I'm staring at it in a radial arc, you know, on, on about a third of the, the one part of the garage roof. Uh, the entire radius, the shingles are burnt and upturned, and uh, the tree is even burnt and charred uh, almost. And, and, of course, for me, immediately I connected these dots together and said, aha, proof. Uh, of the UFO, and now we can go back to school and tell all the kids who made fun of us about what we saw, that in fact, uh, UFO reality is, is true. And, and of course, that summer, I became fully immersed into uh, becoming, you know, my own private little UFO hunter with walkie-talkies and binoculars and my buddies. <laughs> and it, it did, did any of this stuff ever repeat? Um, I, I wouldn't say that. You know, I think that when I uh, th- there was things that we might have seen in the sky, like there was one really incredible night where uh, me and my buddy are kind of running around the neighborhood and we're, we're chasing like a pinprick of light as if this light is flashing on here in one part of the night sky and then it's flashing in another constellation, then in another, and it seemed to be dancing around all over the place. And I think what's interesting about the UFO experience is any uh, light in the sky, you can start to imbue with a narrative or even a personality if you if you want to. And, yeah, uh, yeah. and it'll become, you know, something of your own construction, uh, really. So, so outside of that, I would say there was never any other kind of UFO experiences. What ended up happening after that is I got seriously addicted into um, Ouija board <laughs> experiences and a, and a whole other story altogether. Uh, well, maybe... Oh, we're, oh we're, is that you? Is that you? That, that is me. No, I'm echoing. Oh, it Sorry, stopped. There we go. There we go. Okay. Turn your radio down, sir. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, well, maybe we can bring up the Ouija board stuff later. Sure. Um, what you're interested in, what, what we've talked about a little bit, at least online, 
and uh, by our emails was um, this aspect of the paranormal or the UFO thing as a storytelling experience. And see, when people first hear that, they go, well, what is that supposed to mean? People are just telling stories, and it's much deeper than that, isn't it? I think so. You know, I think the essence of who we are as as people, you know, are our narratives. You know, that's how we define ourselves. I know I grew up with the, the narrative of the Brady Bunch and how I was very heartbroken to discover, in fact, you know what? Uh, the Brady Bunch is not what I'm living. I was living in a household where my parents, you know, fought, physically fought uh, with each other. I remember being kicked out of the house when I was a very young child. When I was three, my my dad kicked my mom and I out of the house. And that was part of, I think, my, my early childhood trauma where I could say that, you know, those altered realities, those experiences as a kid and waking dreams and nightmares and things like that were, were in fact, not normal at all. My, my children don't experience those at all. And, uh, and I really looked to that notion of the narrative kind of defines us, and, and we're defined very much by, by narratives. I know in the, um, uh, I think the, the last people that you had on, the Project Core folk uh, mm-hmm. were on, and they brought up the man Jeff Kripal, the uh, authors of The Impossible, uh, yes. which I, I really hope you, you bring him on your show. I think he fits very well into this, and, and he has a really excellent TED Talk as well, too. And, and he talks a lot about, you know, the notion of the story uh, and the, the image and the symbol, you know, folklore, all of these things are, in fact, uh, tied uh, to that world of, of paranormality. And, and he calls the, the paranormal a, a story that is waking up to its own, own authorship, you know, where, where the paranormal is, is connected with ideas about writing, about the role of narrative, about symbol at work in society. And, and he says that these experiences are, are very paradoxical. Uh, you know, where the, where the subject and object kind of mingle together in that liminal world, and, and the imagination is the thing that that kind of organizes right. uh, those experiences. Uh, and, and so I, I found his talk really interesting because he, he brought up the notion of, of literary creativity and how, in fact, you know, people who see you know, UFOs, uh, I think that, and, and that was brought up in that last episode that you had there, talked about, you know, the role of the creative individual and, and, and what role they play as being visionaries, as artists in society. You know, they, they're people who create uh, new narratives, you know, in, in our society. And, and, and I see that as, as being a very potent part of, of the discussion of, of paranormality and, and, and UFO experiences. What you're saying here, uh, part of what you're saying here, I think, is that... Um Anybody that is a witness to some strange thing is by integrating that experience, they're automatically, well, we're always artists. All of us are. That's right. Constantly. But by integrating that experience and then spitting it back out to themselves first and then others is that they're creating, they're being creative. They're, they're, they're creating, in, this, in essence, an artwork based on their experience and then That's how right. it changed them too, I guess. That's right. And, 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 you know, so we're talking about kind of uh, deconstructive processes and constructive processes. You know, that act of, of, of art is about creation and, and deconstruction and just having cycles of those, those pieces running through. I can't remember if when you had the Project Core people on, but one of the facts or one of the questions they asked was the notion of uh, associations uh, with numbers and associations with colors. Mm-hmm. I can't remember if you, you talked about the idea of synesthesia as, as that is. Did you? No, not on the, I don't think on that show. Which is 
Yeah, unfortunately, because that, that's the reality, right? Like people who experience or have associated feelings with certain numbers or mm-hmm. have associated uh, ideas that come with certain colors, uh, w- those people are, in fact, the artistic crew. Uh, they are people who inside their brain construction, there's an overlap of, you know, sensory experiences. And so there's a blending of the senses that takes place. So I found that really interesting to see that inside their, um, you know, their survey data there because it kind of points to the notion that, that you know, a fraction of society who's, who's witnessing these things are in fact have a certain brain construction perhaps where they are the visionaries they are experiencing synesthesia on a frequent basis and, and when you mix that in with whatever their their social context is you know their personal history their experience who they were as, as people you can start to see how they are the participants of these more extreme narratives these narratives that are taking place you know at the the edge of the woods those kind of marginal experiences that that anti-structure story of you know the rites of passage i guess that you know something we're very familiar with from from early tribes uh, societies, and, and I think we're still seeing, you know, evidence of those individuals perhaps at work through, you know, the paranormal experience. Well, they're well, then they become like, um, in a sense, if they speak about it, maybe even just once, they're kind of accidental, accidental shamans. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I, I think these are all kind of the same same people. You know, the shaman, the magician, the person who says, "Hey, I've got a really wild story I need to tell you," or "I've got this vision that I've had," and and you know, and, and depending on you know the value of that individual, because once upon a time we really valued the, the shaman. They were you know somebody who helped perhaps direct or change or shift or or stimulate change in society. We since have kind of entered into an age of rationalism where, you know, those kind of extreme stories we don't necessarily integrate too well. They're they're either crazy or just some art or just some music or something (laughs) that somebody did for a little while and we don't have to worry about it except as entertainment, which you brought up. That's right. And I think if it's the artist who's doing this, you know, and I think Whitley Strieber's, you know, is an interesting example where he can get away with uh, that narrative. In fact, he can even mainstream the narrative uh, and and turn it into something else altogether. But you look at some of the other figures and I was, you know, I was just trolling through some of the archives and thinking about some of the police uh, witnesses who have seen uh, things. And and there's, you know, an interesting collection of them who, who all get rejected. Uh, by society in very powerful ways that, you know, there's the Val uh, Johnson uh, character, you know, he gets struck by some ball and it bends his his antenna down. I'm sure you remember that uh, one. And and he's kind of pretty much run out of the state there. They took his car and put it on display as like example of the the UFO, uh, you know, event. Uh, And then I think the classic one is Dale Spar from Portage, Ohio, where, where he totally deconstructs and, and breaks down. He comes home after witnessing uh, the UFO uh, event, and he uh, assaults his wife. He gets arrested. He loses his uh, marriage, his job. He, he's also pretty much run out of town, and so is the other cop that was you know part of the big witness uh, with him as well. And, uh, and I don't know, do you know that other one, the Green High, he's a young police chief, and he had photographed, supposedly, a, an alien in aluminum foil? Oh, yeah, I, I remember. It's on the cover of uh, Robert Emenegger's uh, UFOs Past, Present, and Future book. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, and he's an interesting, now his story, you know, not only does he lose his job, lose his wife, his house gets burned to the ground. You know, so you've got these, these characters who are authoritarians and people are, I guess, supposed to protect rational thought and, and normalcy and, and society who are retelling these very creative, outlandish stories, and they're being run out of town. 
uh, for that. So they're they're not accepted. Those those types of narratives are not accepted. And and you know, and I think when you look at maybe even the history of you know the contactees or people who are talking about these you know extreme deconstructive tales, uh, we kind of go through shifts in society in terms of what we celebrate, what we don't celebrate. And now I think we've kind of just loaded them all up as being well, that's entirely impossible, and they're kooks. Um, and and we've almost left it at that as far as how we how we treat that that type of story. The funny thing is you mention all that, and there's also a – and I've played it on this show. It's a um, lecture by Herbert Shermer, uh, the Ashland, Nebraska, uh, we want you to believe in us but not too much, aliens with the flying dragon on their emblem on their shirt, guys. Right? Yeah. He's talking about – he had the exact same thing practically happened to him. He had the town turn against him. Um, he had to move away. When he got when he got back home, I think after going to be hypnotized by Leo Sprinkle, and uh, he said he came back home and there was a um, there was an effigy of him hanging from a tree in the town. <laughs> Lovely, yeah. Lovely. Some of this stuff is so different that it actually makes people hostile because it just stirs the pot too much, uh, quote unquote. Well, I think that's almost something that's in our our nature, you know, is to kind of kill those who are not kill like heretic, us, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and you know, and, and really wipe them out. And we see it still in the modern era. Uh, you know, if you take a look at post civil rights era, you know, some of the not post civil rights, but I'm thinking post slave era. Some of the images of post slave era where you're seeing, you know, lynchings. Uh, take place and where white families are going out for a picnic and and all the kids are smiling in, in the front and in the back there's like this dead body that's hanging from a tree that's been burned and and the parents are, are handing out teeth you know to the kids as a as a, as a memento of the event and, and and you think of what what kind of narratives can be created in society to create that type of normalcy uh, there there where people have agreed this is the narrative we're going to go along with uh, and, and what people can do to each other from that. And, and you look at life in the digital era and you look at I, 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 as a, I'm a teach high school teacher. And so I'm very kind of tuned into to notions of what, what are the digital narratives or profound digital narratives and stories that are taking place? And how are these shifting our, our attitudes and our values in society? And uh, I don't know. Are you familiar with the Amanda Todd story? No. She's a teenage girl who, who flashes her, her breasts online and a guy in Netherlands captures it and he kind of stalks her uh, from school to school, ruining her life until uh, she ends up, I think, taking bleach and attempts suicide. And that became an Internet meme for oh, a yeah, very yeah. long time. Yeah. You might remember that part, yeah. uh, right? And then and then finally she does actually commit uh, suicide a second time. And it's a, it's a really sad, terrifying story because she advertised it online. She published her story through YouTube, kind of anticipating her suicide, um, documented a lot of the elements. That, in, in, an, in an age of, of, you know, mass communication and, 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 and uh where, where she had so many contacts with so many people, her suicide was still inevitable because of what the digital community had decided that she was going to be excommunicated. And, and there's a lot of those kind of stories uh, recurring over and over again. And and really, that, that age group of the 15 to 24-year-old, those suicide stats, that's the only group where suicides are increasing globally, is in that teen group, as specifically among males, they're responsible for 80% of those, and the majority of those are queer youth, you know, guys who are, yeah. can't come to terms with their sexuality. And so I think that we're, we are still in that age where we are really controlling the nature of the narrative, and to be outside the narrative is to invite danger and disaster to yourself. Yeah. 
it's funny that you would think that the, the they could create that narrative, but the the narrative is created by the majority, not by somebody who's saying something that people don't want to hear. If they, even That's if right. they said something creative and funny that they'd want to hear, they that that when they realize what's going on, they'll still freak out. Yep. It's the same, you know, you're giving extreme examples, but it's the same with, uh, as we said, with uh, paranormal experiences. Maybe not so much now because we've just been so saturated with it, with a certain kind of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, if if you go off the script for, like, if you go to the the Humanoid Encounter site and you start looking up some of those things. um, And one of them actually, you, you sent me an example of it about the guy running over the alien. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a, some classic ones there that when, when you, you get that much it, different, even the people that are into it start rejecting you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, and I and what's interesting is because you know the weirder the story, I, I always think that to me that's the the indicator possibly of, of something perhaps that that really did happen uh, there. You know, I think all of the, the more common stories, those patterns of of UFO abduction, you know, the, the missing time, uh, getting probed, yeah. uh, you know, the, the 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 lack of the threshold experience, all of those features seem to form a pattern that tell us that, well, there is a very specific script uh, that's there, and, and now your life might get rescripted by the masses depending on whether they want to hear your story or, or not, and that's where I think that, that Italian character Pierre Fortunato is, is very interesting because his script seems to get celebrated by the masses. He, he gets hypnotized almost immediately after it happens. The second event gets hypnotized, and that's broadcast on TV. And and uh, I think even his his the, the the journalist. I read the English translation of, of his case just recently. Uh, Reno uh, De Stefano is the Italian journalist that that follows it, and he talks about how the company, the security company, he's employed by, sees it as an entertaining uh, adventure. You know, it's like noisy, but but they seem to be thrilled with it, and they seem to be all participating in this mystery, and so it just grows into an enormous uh, narrative that eventually, you know, crosses you know over to America. Uh, it's it's a really interesting story where people chose to say we're going to validate that narrative. We're we're going to get behind that and, and celebrate it and have fun with it. Yeah, well, that also also brings up as you mentioned um, contactee type stuff. And I don't know anything about this guy. I mean, the first time I heard about him was your email. What yesterday? Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I think you know the one that I, I was almost going to hang my hat on as being okay. There's an abduction story that has some real potential of reality because you read some of the, the, the witness pieces that made its way to American kind of uh, re recycling of the story. And I think that's the other dilemma with, you know, UFO and paranormal uh, discussion. It's very hard to get at the reality of these pieces. It gets recycled so much on online and so many, you know, falsities and hoaxes and elaborations and embellishments start to become part of the, the narrative where it's, it's really not true. Yeah. And, you know, one of, one of the most amazing parts of his story, there's a couple of interesting features, but one are these enormous footprints, eh? Like these, these huge footprints that are about four or five times the size of an average uh, foot that supposedly had treads on them and, and, and huge outlines. And, and you look, and I saw that image online, and then I looked at the image that's in the book, and in the book, it's actually got a dotted outline around a shape. There's no treads there whatsoever. And if you remove the dotted outline, it's, it's hard to actually imagine that there's even a footprint there at all. And, and the more I started reading through his story, the more you start to realize that, well, he sounds more likely a, a, an example of somebody's having a, a real schizophrenic event and is starting to parlay a lot of different voices and is starting to engage in the hypnosis kind of script where he himself now is becoming a major actor uh, yeah. in the entire event. But the way that his story initially gets sold, all the different features, it is high drama and it sounds extremely real. 
And, and it kind of it culminates in this moment where he tells people that the aliens, the aliens have given him a, um, a sphere, a magical sphere with a golden pyramid in it. And they tell him, this is what, this will help tell you what humanity really is. And you need to get in touch with Alan Hynek and give him the sphere. When did they That's, tell him this? Uh, well, they told him this and during one of his many abduction events. I think he's abducted about four or five times, and, and kind of the contacts continue. No, I mean, eventually, what, he becomes a contact. Okay. What year did relaying. this? Um, I think we're in the seventies that this. Oh, okay, uh, okay. So this, this is a while place. back. Yeah, that's right. And he ends up making it over to America, but Heineck is dead. And the people that meet him uh, for this conference, you might know these people: uh, Myers and Coate, the ones who managed to finagle all the uh, is it the app profiles? Yeah, yeah. And so they meet him and tell him, listen, you know, we know other people who've had the same experiences of you. and We've got two of the other spheres, but we need yours to kind of fulfill this human destiny event. So you need to hand it over uh, uh, to us. No! <laughs> so, so now he's being totally validated. And even the, uh, the journalist is over there with him, you know, can't believe this. Like, what am I supposed to, you know, do? Here are these people claiming they're the spiritual heirs of J. Allen Hynek. And, 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 the, and the aliens told him, you know, this is who you need to deliver it to. It's, it all starts, you know, starts to write itself almost, uh, these kind of scripts. You know, they're so fantastical. Yeah, well, now you're making me feel like an old person who doesn't know anything because I've never heard this stupid story. This is amazing. I mean, it's like, has somebody written this up besides just a journalist once in a while? Because this is, it would make a great mainstream book, actually. Yeah, this, it's called the Zenfreda case, and it's a Reno de Sifano, just recently translated in, in English. But you'll see parts of it and even... Oh, I that's think right. Okay, yeah, that's right. You said there was a book. Yeah, and, and the Italian, I think, uh, one of the hip, the, hip broad, the hypnosis piece that was broadcast, I think that's available online uh, somewhere. But you know what's interesting about that story is, is Chris Krukowski documents a, a story as well where uh, uh, a person is going through also very profound alien contact, very, very intense. She's seeing them all over the place. Uh, they're helping her with her sight studies. In fact, at one point, she, she goes unconscious before she has to do a presentation uh, in a university class, and then she, she remembers coming out of the class and everybody congratulating her and telling her how amazing a presentation she did. And then the aliens tell her later on that, in fact, uh, they took over her body and they did the, the seminar for her. But not only do they tell her that, they tell her, listen, you need to get in touch with Chris Rakowski and talk with him because we have a message to give him. So, you know, very similar to Fortunato's, where, where both these people are claiming we'd never heard this person before. You know, but, but both these people are having very schizoidal Events and in fact, when yeah. Chris Rukowski does meet this uh, woman, and he takes her to uh, psych- I think a psychologist. He's got a psychologist and a psychiatrist that he that he works with on occasion, and, and it gets confirmed. No, she's having a full blown schizophrenic breakdown, and that she has created a series of very interesting characters, these aliens, uh, to help compensate. Uh, for the experiences that are that are taking place, and I think that's not you know unknown that that happens in, in schizophrenic breakdowns where people yeah. will ma- invent all sorts of manner of monsters and characters and organizers and controllers who help you know dictate their lives to them and will perhaps even supply them with information. And one part of the brain is supplying information that the other part of the brain is not acknowledging or, or recognizing as, as belonging to them. So, well, one, two questions. One, what's the name of that book about the uh, uh, Italian man? So it's uh, the Zanfretta case. Uh, Can you spell it? Z a n f r e t t a. Okay. Zanfretta case. So his name is Piero Fortunato Zanfretta. Oh. Uh, it's, and so, and it's written by Reno 
D Stefano and D Stefano are two two words D I yeah. and then Stefano S T E F A N O. Okay, I just want to make sure when people are listening, they go, "What? What did he say? What? I want to I want yeah. to get that book." Um, it's, it, well, it's interesting, but what I think what's sad about it is it, all of the hypnosis sessions are documented mm-hmm. in transcript. And by the time you're reading the last transcript, you're seeing that, you know, the hypnosis people are basically the dominators in the conversation. Yeah. And, yeah. and Fortunato is hardly relaying anything. But but about midway in their s- sessions, he is starting to relay uh, the voice, electronic voices of his um, of his contactees, these very large aliens. These aliens are, are enormous. They're like seven feet tall. They're massive. They have some type of weird breathing apparatus on them. They've got leathery, foldy skins, uh, triangular kind of eye shapes, and they're very, very hot. And whenever Stefano is, uh, sorry, not Stefano, uh, Zanfretta, whenever Zanfretta is found at the scene, like he's just charged bullets, he pretend, he believes he's shooting at them, and he supposedly is, is entirely hot, even though he's outside. And then the interior of his car is considered to be baking, even though it's like a cold night. So there's lots of these little evidence pieces that are put together, but I think when you start to really look at it all, it's really uh, one of those examples of people uh, collecting a bunch of discontinuous events and you know, amalgamating them together and writing you know, a, a script and, and the script that we're familiar with, the, you know, quite familiar with of alien abduction. Okay. And the, and the other part of the uh, question was, given that this woman said there were aliens telling her whatever yeah. and uh, uh, taking her out of her uh, conscious memory and having her do the lecture, at the, if we're listening to them, where do we hook into that? Like if just some a UFO researcher, for for example, where do they hook into that? Do they hook in? You know, it becomes a problem of what's internal and what's external. Right, and and I think that you is know, that I, even important. I think it's highly important in terms of is it internal or external? Because I, you know, in, in the discussion around abductions, and, and this has been said even on on your show. You know, without the three superstars of alien abduction really broadcasting, two dead and one kind of in a in a kerfuffle uh, there, uh, we are not hearing those narratives anymore. Right. And and they were kind of proponent. Well, Mac was more of a proponent of an internal experience, but right. the other ones were proponents of you know major external experiences. But when you really start to look at the abduction piece, uh, whether you're looking at it from a practical, rational, critical uh, manner, or when, or when you get to the real details of who these people are, like who are the people that are experiencing these things? Well, they're they're a very wide range. Yeah. Um, some of them are, are re- repeated experiences, and the repeated experiences seem to belong to a, a cohort of people who also have very interesting deconstructive events uh, part of their lives, you know, where, where in fact they are the people who've either suffered abuse or child abuse or sexual abuse, and, and these things are being remanifested, uh, you know, oh, in, I in see, their I lives. See. Yeah, because... Uh, uh, because because of the trauma, the normal kind of trauma, the trauma that we all know about, they've yeah. got a bifurcated kind of um, consciousness. Entirely. Uh, you know, in one of my uh, colleagues uh, at work, uh, once I started engaging in very long-term uh, conversation with this person about uh, what turned out to be, she had claimed there was a monster that was in her house. Uh, and this monster was abusing her, was actually sexually abusing her and, and her her. Her mother was ill and her father was powerless to stop this this other man. She kept describing an other man and he was a monster uh, type of thing. And uh, where we kind of left off in our dialogue is what I came to realize is the other monster, in fact, was her father. Yeah. Uh, 
she was having great difficulty in coming to terms with with this and and where she next left uh, for me which I really encouraged her was you know you really need to seek professional help yeah uh, you need to uh, start dialoguing around this and, and trying to pull these things together and, and years later you know she identified that that really was the launching point for her to actually work on healing you know that part of her 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 life experience and and I think that's one thing you know if there's another book I, I strongly recommend for people who are interested in, in the abduction piece is Chris Rakowski's uh, piece called uh, Abductions and Aliens What's Really Going On and what he really mandates is and and, and we hear this echoed uh, throughout but people are going through these really complicated deconstructive experiences um, are perhaps people who need a lot of professional help and what he really advocates is they need compassion. They need a lot of compassion because they believe that this story is real. Yeah. They believe that it's happening to them. Now, and as I said, in some cases, these people really do. They, they need either psychological help. They need care. They need uh, support. They're, they're working through perhaps personal narratives that are being manifested in other ways altogether. And, and then there's the weird one-offs, you know, where people have had uh, a really, really odd experience, you know, contact with aliens. And it happens once, you know, they come downstairs and suddenly there's aliens sitting in their, their living room and they have a conversation with them. And, and then that's the last they ever hear of them again. And, and they continue to leave very normal and, uh, and natural lives they've got no weirdnesses associated there's no deconstructive events it's just kind of a one-off event and and those are the ones that i guess puzzle rakowski a lot in terms of you know what are you to do with these kinds of things are these internal are these external experiences and 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 really because so often when you look at these experiences what does jerome clark say you know these types of liminal experiences are alive only in the 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 mind and memory of the witness you know and and no one else shares in it and so if you don't have any you know confirmed external pieces to match it up, uh, then there's not really too much to go on. I think the majority of these experiences are extremely internal and, and perhaps speak to the notion and the role of narrative in our society and perhaps have a lot more to deal with how our brains, you know, work <laughs> and, and how our brain kind of interprets really unique stimulus. Yeah. The quote I was thinking of when you're saying this was uh, when I, uh, Mario Pozzolini, who was, you know who that is, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The alien writing guy, when, when he was alive, he told me that uh, during my interview with him, he said, I think a lot of the abduction researchers have very little knowledge or respect for the subconscious. Mm-hmm. And I think he was saying, encoding basically what you've said in the past, you know, 10 or 15 minutes here. And uh, that I'm very interested in, of course, because nobody, nobody has talked about this stuff really. Not up to now. They they have, but not in a popular way, and not in a way that sinks down into you know a lot of people that are interested in the subject confronting this. It's either aliens from other planets, or it's not, or it's a hoax, or it's not, and it, it's far more complicated than that because people are far more complicated than that. Uh, absolutely. When you say um, that somebody that's reporting a so-called abduction experience needs compassion, what form would that take? Because you don't walk up to them and say, or they walk into your office and you say, yes, yes, I'm sure that's right. And, uh, and you're, you're, you're trying to convince them that what happened didn't happen. That would be the normal thing to do. That's right. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think that's where, you know, Rakowski calls it AAS, alien abduction syndrome. He, he wants to legitimize it yeah. as an experience. There's enough of a population that this is happening to. We need to turn it over to science. And I think when you, you read some of the critics of, say, Hopkins or Jacobs, you know, the critics are very harsh about these people have no training whatsoever to deal with what is obviously a psychological event yeah. that is having a very significant impact on them. So when you look at, you know, those police officers I, I mentioned, right? Like they're, they're, exper- they, they're 
they're post-traumatic stress disorder folk, you know? Yeah. They've been rejected by the masses. They're having experiences they can't name. They don't want to tell anybody about. Um, and, and perhaps what's even deeper underneath them, you know, as I described, you know, like, like one of the narratives nobody wants to talk about is sexual abuse, specifically sexual abuse in the family. Nobody wants to hear that uh, yeah. kind of story. People often, we, we continue to re-victimize women who want to tell the story of sexual assault by making them tell their story four or five times over, you know, inside of police stations to strangers. And, and, and yet we want to try to move forward in society with that. So when you think of the, the alien abduction experience, which is a very profound, very disturbing, it's got to be, you know, one of the most extreme, you know, edges of, of tales that you can think about outside of, you know, those witnessing of, of weird torture and, and murder and, and war, you yeah. know, and, and th- that kind of mayhem there. So he believes that we really, we need to legitimize it in society. Uh, we need to, uh, and, and yet when we look at the professionals we're working, uh, which are the professionals that are trained in, and, and working with this type of story will validate that kind of narrative. As you say, most people will reject it. I think the only uh, psychologists or psychiatrists I've seen write about it have totally dismissed, you know, the experience as being, you know, oh, they must be victims of this or, or victims of that kind of, of trauma and are not allowing for, you know, that, you know, as, as, you know, I think the phrase you describe, you know, the excluded middle, you know, like there, well, why does it always have to be this, uh, it's this or that kind of experience? There's something much more, uh, robust, rich, and nuanced that's taking place in the middle of, of these things. And that's what we really need to start working with. And I, and I, Duensing, I think, said it well. The witness is right in front of us, and that's who we should be working with. And if the witness is telling us these very profound stories and we're seeing it's had a very emotionally disturbing effect upon them, then the way that we respond to them has to be with some care and sophistication. And we really don't have that built into our society, and, and that's why their narratives are not integrated into our society and you know unless you're you know a Whitley Strieber and then your narrative becomes entertainment you know you're 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 telling a horror story again now, now it's a movie you know in the same way that Travis Walton's story I think is more about you know entertainment um yeah than it has is about become, a real yeah. personal story actually I shouldn't say has become that's what it was from the very start sure that's right yeah what's that middle way then if somebody uh, walks into a psychologist's office and says, I mean, I, I want to like kind of brass tack it a little bit. Sure, sure, sure. Somebody walks into a psychologist's office and says, I think I've been abducted by aliens over a period of time. Um, what's the reaction there? You know, you say, oh, sure you have or, you know, I don't know. What would be the first thing? Well, let's talk about it some more and see what can come out of it. And don't talk to anybody else about it, please, because I just want to work with you. Uh, yeah, and, and this, you know, this is a thing, you know, like, who, who is that person that's listening on the other end? And, and from what I was, you know, from Rakowski's experiences, he's had, you know, different kinds. And one of the things that seems to be a no-no is, is regression and hypnosis are, are just vile things uh, to do. Um, talk yeah. therapy seems to be a lot more legitimate. Yes. Um, and uh, have, you, have you ever had any experiences talking with schizophrenics? Mm, yeah, well, not certified ones. <laughs> <laughs> I had a best friend who had two uh, schizophrenic breakdowns. Actually, yes, and, I have. I mean, to the yeah. point where, you, you know, I have to humor them. And one, so they don't freak out. And That's two, right. because sometimes it's really goddamn interesting. That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you know, you're somebody who's a connoisseur of conversations. And I have to say the best conversations I've ever had was with my schizophrenic friend who was in the middle of decompensating. And when he was coming down from that, where the thoughts were still pretty wild and exceptional and the narratives he were telling were unlike any other narratives I've ever heard before. But 
Uh, what did kind of come out in, in the story, in t- the, the second time around that he, he decompensated, uh, the group of friends and his family decided we were not going to let him go to a mental health unit where he was going to get loaded up with all sorts of weird What does decompensated and- mean? Uh, so decompensating, I think, is the friendly way of saying going mad and, and losing your marbles because we don't like to use that kind of language when we're talking about mental health issues. No, so we can go ahead and that- say it on this show. It's fine. <laughs> we're not prejudiced. We know what we're talking about. We're not hostile to these people. Go ahead. This is, this is true. And, and so what we decided is we would gather around him and we would take shifts. We would take shifts and look after him uh, at night. And, and I remember some of the shifts were very disturbing for some of the friends. They couldn't yeah. go back there again. Um, huh. But I remember the one experience. I'm talking with him and he is telling me, he's telling me there's helicopters in the sky. They're, they're, they're looking in on him. They're hearing his conversations. and uh, They are uh, watching him. He's, he's in extreme paranoia. Now, we ended up having a multi-hour conversation where I got uh, treated to everything from his own personal interrogation room where he had created a doctor that was interrogating him with a single light in a chair inside of a furnace room. He was building bombs out of cardboard boxes and various structures. Um, But then we finally settled into a a late-night conversation where he could kind of express his emotions a little bit. And we ended up talking a little bit more back about his early history. His mother left him when he was a child. His mother uh, was schizophrenic and hallucinated. And his uh, dad used to go outside and pretend to shoot the pink elephants that were in the yard to to calm her down and, and keep her relaxed. And huh. the conversation shifted from talking about his mom to his girlfriend Genetic. who was in Germany and was not with him anymore. And he was really feeling abandoned. And the words finally came out of his mouth where he said to me, he says, so you're telling me, Robert, that the reason why I'm going through this right now is because I'm worried that my girlfriend is not going to come back to me again? And I said, you know, friend, it, I didn't say that. You said that. And, and I think in, in talk therapy, and this is what I know from him, he's a, he's a mental health advocate now, and he's, he's published some really exceptional books in, in the field. He does lecture pieces uh, there. He's really uh, come out the other end of this experience to name how society, in fact, treats those narratives, the schizophrenic narrative, with great disdain and, and yeah. re-victimizes people. And so it's very parallel to, to the story that we're talking about or the uh, paradigm yeah. we're talking about in terms so, of you. Uh, so pushing back on it is about the worst thing you could possibly do. Absolutely. You need to validate people and let them tell their story and get their narrative out because they've got a narrative to tell. And their story is very complex and very rich. And there's there's real reasons often behind why they're experiencing these really fabulous uh, moments of reality and and these conflicted voices in their head. Um, You know, there's all sorts of things that are happening to them that are tied to to a story that they can't get out that's not being accepted. And so really, when we say you need compassion for people's story, I mean, if you've ever heard anybody tell you a story about their own personal trauma or their assault or, or you know you don't say that didn't happen or, or maybe it didn't go like that no you, you validate them and you need to let them to continue to tell their narrative and you need to help give them strategies perhaps of, of how to not and, and that's very difficult you know because yeah we, we don't know what's happening inside their mind in terms of brain chemistry and things like that we don't know uh, which parts of their their brain are more activated than others uh, certainly in the experience i've seen is that the drugs are not always a good thing for people at all and yeah. other other people you know it does help moderate them uh, a little bit more but I I'll think you, being go ahead. validating the story, I, I just think validating the story is the, the most important part. And then you can proceed from there to find out what the root of the story is. Right. I, a very, very mild form of that, and I've mentioned this before, is I was talking to Mario once, and a clinical psychologist trained, and probably approached these things exactly the way that you're talking about them. Um, now, that I, now that I think of it, I mean, it's, it's kind of a revelation to me that you talk about, you, you're mentioning the talk therapy. Um, 
one time I couldn't get the magazine going, excluded middle. I just couldn't think of any. I was kind of blocked up, and I had no idea why. Because that's all I thought about, you know, day and night for like 10 years. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't do it for some reason. I said, Mario, I, he would, I would call him and he'd give me free therapy on the phone. <laughs> Essentially. Um, well, just in the, for, in the course of talking about stuff and just talking friendly, you know, becoming uh, – I considered him a friend. So he would talk to me about things and I said, I can't seem to get going on this. And he listened to the whole – you know, he listened to my little complaint and he said, well, why don't you just not do it then? Just – Give yourself, give yourself a little vacation. Don't worry about mm-hmm. it. And as soon as we got off the phone, I started again. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes we just need to talk ourselves into a different position. You know, yeah, like I mean, I, that, I, that uh, came to mind when you said, told your friend, when you were talking to your friend and you said, what did you say you, you told him when he, he said all this? That yeah, That's what you said. You know, the, you, you said that. That's your truth. Yeah, exactly. Right? And you people just, have to come to their own yeah. truths, right? So like what you're telling me is blah, blah, blah. It's like, nope, yeah. you just told me that. Yeah, that's right. And, and, that, and that, that, you know, at some point during this talk therapy and non, um, uh, what's the word? Uh, uh, judgment, non-judgmental talk therapy. That's right. If you're lucky and without the drugs and all that, maybe the person will... You know, they, they will realize what's going on in some small way. It's it's a it's it's a very profound way of saying you've answered your own question by telling me what happened and how you feel. And your own, you know, you, sometimes you'll ask people a question. In the course of asking the question, you try to describe it to them, and you explain your way out of it. You go, oh, I don't have the question anymore. So this is a much more profound way of doing that. Isn't that what's amazing about conversations? You know, like really excellent conversations. If you've got troubles, you know, find yourself a good friend and, and you'll talk your way out of it because giving advice is the worst thing in the world. And, oh, yeah, and yeah, trying yeah. to take somebody else's advice and apply it to your reality is never going to work. You need to write your, you need to redo the script. You know, you've got to do it yourself. When you look at, uh, I, you know, I have a lot of compassion for the story of Dale Spar. The first time I read that story, uh, I was really. I remember that touched. name, but I don't remember what happened. It's A S P A U R, right? Yeah, S P A U R. He's yeah. the, the the police officer from that's right, uh, that's Port, right. I'm Portage, sorry. Portage, Ohio, right? And 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 so it's interesting in his story because he's obviously some, something pushed him, right? Like he's whatever the stimulus was, and and other people witnessed that stimulus. There was something in the sky, right? Now whether it's a UFO or it's an electromagnetic ball of energy, but whatever it was, it, it messed with him. And uh, there's one great scene where uh, he stops at the side of the road, and there's that there's a truck. That's there, and he goes inside the truck, and it's filled with like electronics and and weird recording devices. And, and outside, on the cover of the van, there's the logo that says, "I think it's a Seven Steps to Heaven." It's like an army. It's like a Vietnam War army, I think, yeah. logo or something like that. And then the next day, people go to investigate, and there's this old burnt out truck that's there that's been sitting there for like weeks at a time, and it's got some old electronics and old kids' toys in it, but it's fallen apart. There's no logo on the front of it, you know. So he's experiencing another reality. He comes home, he strikes his wife. Uh, he gets charged, you know, and then he believes that the flying saucer is reappearing and, and he's and its name is Floyd and he's in contact with Floyd now. And now he's a full blown contactee. Right. And th- these patterns seem to repeat where people have these incredible uh, outside the, the the norm experiences that, that you know, literally from a, another planet kind of things. And, and they know what that means. You know, and I think that really flips people's minds uh, on edge and, and they get rescripted. 
But their story gets rescripted altogether, and now they've got to write a whole new script, and now they're on the outsides and the periphery of society. They're not being reintegrated. Their story's not being accepted. They can't accept their story. And he had to go to another town and rewrite another story altogether, you know, start all over again. Yeah. And, and I think that's a really sad uh, tale about how we don't accept, you know, certain narratives in society. We, we don't allow them, and even our own brain. You know, our own brain will reject that things happen and will confabulate something else. I don't know if you're aware of this, this group of women that's in, I'm pretty sure they're in California. I remember seeing an indie video about them, a group of women from Cambodia who had witnessed, you know, some of Pol Pot's uh, uh, terrible, vile things that the Khmer Rouge did, and they went spontaneously blind. Do you know No, I've never heard of this. I mean, it, so it makes it makes 100% total, absolute psychological sense. Does it not, right? Because they don't want to have to see these things again, you know, and, and Werner Herzog goes to uh, uh, Iraq during the first, uh, oh, to Kuwait and, and, and to, to look at what Saddam has done by setting the oil fields on fire. And he interviews a woman who's lost speech. You know, she watched her son be killed, her husband tortured, and she can't talk anymore. You know, like, like she can't even communicate the things that have gone on that have happened to her. And, 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 and so now that's, that's real heavy, heavy drama that she's experienced that has completely yeah. scripted her, her reality altogether. And, and, you know, when you listen to some UFO reports, like on that Wendy O'Connor's faded discs, there's some people that describe things that they don't even have words for what they've seen. You know, like they, they cannot actually name and define it. And you can hear how disturbed they are, you know, that, that they've witnessed something that they feel they should not have witnessed there. And that, that rescripts people. Yeah. And that, well, there's, there's fear mm-hmm. uh, of the experience. There's fear, fear about how people react. And then there's also, and, you know, I mentioned this before, there, there's no words to describe that. Absolutely not. In, in a lot of cases, it's like, well, if you had the words to describe it, it wouldn't be that strange, would it? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Now, there, there's one, and, and I was going to suggest that we play this one, but this one, it's, it's too long and lengthy and doesn't make for good radio. But, but there's an exceptional one that your listeners would be interested in hearing, which is uh, early Preston from 1973. He uh, stops on the highway, sees a very large saucer. It's covering all lanes of, of the highway. So I guess all four lanes. It's an enormous uh, ship. Um, and out of it come these two creatures. They've got uh, like flippers for feet. They've got webbed hands. And um, from the waist up, they look identical to catfish, he describes them as. The ship, the ship, he says, is made of a spider web like material that's honeycombed with a glowing eye center and everything is glowing. And then he tries to describe what's on the back of these creatures. And, and he is just mystified. Like for two minutes, he's stumbling over language. And he's trying to describe, he says, there's this V-shape that's like it's opening and closing. You know, and it's got these like, like it, it's almost like feathers. He says, it's like a feather that's, that's interwoven and it's folding in on itself. And it's opening and closing, opening and closing. You know, and I heard that and the catfish, you know, it almost sounds like gills. You know, like like something trying to breathe there. And, and yeah. I wonder, you know, is is that experience there? That's just so weird, so bizarre, so off the mark. You wonder, wow, could this guy just have a brilliant imagination? And that's what gets called forth to be able to name whatever the experience was that he had uh, there. Or, or is this the real event? You know, like what's taking what? place? But then l- later on in the interview, you know, they say, can you draw it for us? And he says, oh, absolutely. I can totally draw that. Uh, there, you know, <laughs> so, 
So it's kind of fascinating that, that perhaps he himself is the artistic figure that is, has encountered something, you know, encountered something. And, and the way that it comes out, it comes out in a very intimate manner. And that's what I think is interesting about the, the UFO experience. And when you listen to humanoid contacts, when, when there's messages there, the nature of the narrative is, is pretty interesting because you get a sense that it is coming from inside the head, that it is, in fact, totally internal. You know, it's, it's like the Oz, the whole Oz factor piece, you know, that people talk about. Yeah there i think those things really are uh when when basically the the brain has suddenly gone off people are experiencing a waking dream or you know they're hallucinating i mean most time when people are driving and commuting are you a commuter uh no not anymore okay so i i'm a hardcore commuter and and i've had this experience before you know were you, were you shut want, off during your commute totally totally right and your brain's just moving you know on automatic uh basically and you're negotiating traffic and doing all those things uh there but there's one encounter where this this guy robert estes uh he uh oh, well living really, in la yes total commuting i mean there's a lot of right. time spent in the car so yes exactly go ahead but, so, so Robert Estes describes his experience. It's also, I think, a '70s experience from the Faded Discs uh, one, and and he is, I think, he's involved in um, in in some type of manufacturing process, and and he says he gets bumped off the road by what appears to be a gigantic tank. He calls it like a World War tank. It's got like um, you know like treads and things like that that are rolling around. It doesn't look like a UFO at all. But what hops out of the ship is this guy, a human, hops out of the ship and looks at him and says, "What do you think of this, Bob?" And then he jumps back in the ship and, and takes off. And, and then traffic starts to come back online again. And, and off he goes. And he's totally befuddled. He says, you know, I've never had anything like this happen before. I don't drink. I don't do drugs. You know, I'm struck down. I'm in charge of people, he says. I'm in charge of people and I'm involved with technical things. And I feel like it's my duty to report. And I was kind of fascinated by that, that, that concept that he felt that he, he really needed to tell this story. He needed to share this narrative because who he was. Because if weird things like this are going on, People need to do something about it. Yeah. But, but it really sounds like such a, a, an intimate internal experience. You know, your name is known. You know, the, all those stories about telepathy and things like that. These are things that are happening, I think, inside of our minds quite often. When you talk about that co-creative process, yeah. it seems like the mind is spontaneously pulling some things for us. Yeah. Well, the thing is that this is how I think about the contactees or many of them is that there was a – for some of them, there was a precipitating experience – and then the narrative just started taking on a life of its own. That's right. And this, what you're suggesting, which I think is incredibly, you know, in, in, insightful, is that this may be what's going on in just about all paranormal experience, especially UFO stuff. I don't like to use the word all because that sounds so so absolutist. There, did I say all? I, I'm sorry, <laughs> but but I do think that there because I think there's a multiplicity of things you know that could be causing it. Who knows what that, yeah. that I, I think there is? I, I will I will uh, amend it to say that in all of the experiences, to some extent, when you see something you don't expect, your mind's going to fill in a lot of blanks. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in the course of filling in those blanks, it's going to borrow from your subconscious, from what you've been taught, from the culture, from what you've you know heard other people say, and who knows what. And 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 like you said, from um, may, maybe as an outgrowth of some kind of uh, trauma, other kind of trauma that wasn't a UFO type thing, but it gets hooked in because it's another thing that just your your mind didn't want to deal with or had to make right. sense in some way so that you could go on. Absolutely. And, and, you know, and I thought Duinsing, you know, said it well, you know, that people don't like complexity. 
And yet when right. you look at the nature of these stories, these are highly complex stories and they do deal with, you know, our sensory apparatus. And, and we have great difficulty in describing how consciousness works. And, and we have even greater difficulty in, in describing the nature of, you know, of reality. You know, like it's all at best, it's a sense impression. And it's a sense impression that a lot of us are just agreeing on. OK, this is normal. So we're going to work with that. But, but when you start looking at how, you know, sight works, for example, you know, sight, uh, I think 90%, I believe, of what we see is like a pre-recorded image. Right? Yes. Where, where, right, where it's just being filled in. So it's the fovea centralis, that area of focus where we're looking at something. And the way that it works, I think, first, there's like a, a leading edge. Like we get shapes uh, defined. And then after that, things like texture and color come, come yeah. afterwards. So if we're looking at something very profoundly new and, and, and very out of the ordinary – uh, and then now the brain is trying to have to flip through, you know, the image bank to try to figure out well, what the hell is this and what should I be throwing up on your virtual screen in your brain to tell you what you're actually seeing. Well, let me take a shot at it. Yeah. Here's a spider webbed honeycombed object. And, yeah, exactly. And there it is. That's just what I was thinking when you were describing that, that in the course of flipping through all that to try and make sense of this totally weird, horrible thing or, well, uh, not horrible, but just alien thing that your brain will say, that's the thing, no matter how weird it is, as long as you can hook onto it at the time. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, you know, when you, so, so then when we take a look back right in time and we take a look at, say, for example, the, you know, the early airship sightings, who's flying the airships, you know, and, and, and who's flying the airships are the people for the most part. They look like they're Irishmen, they're Scandinavians, they get reported as Japanese, they're wearing navy suits they're wearing bloomers they look like they're dressed for a tea party uh, yeah. one of them i think is wearing down or in hunting clothes or in furs yeah exactly you know? so there's this weird constellation of, of narrative you know imagery that's very uh, apropos for the time and if we go further back in time so those now we're getting the fairies and, and the leprechauns and and what have you and then fast forward to our era we've got our own you know kind of narrative structures of who the creatures and the monsters and and the weird things are that are piloting these ships and and what have you and we i think we've kind of agreed collectively on on what those are i think we're always involved in making stories and making folklore and and when you think about it, i think the even the eth you know the extraterrestrial hypothesis isn't that just folklore you know, when you, when you think about it, that, that that's something that was a, a narrative that got sold to us from what? From Flash Gordon, from, you know, from early novels uh, that yeah, well, then eventually from, yeah, that story from even before that. Way. Yeah. Pardon? From even yeah, before even, that. That's right. And, and, and then the storyline worms its way into the populace. And then things start clicking in the populace. These narratives start showing up. People are seeing balls of light during World War II. Kenneth Arnold happens. Everything explodes. Uh, and 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 then the wave of movies in the fifties, yeah. you know, it's it's it, it writes itself, you know, in, in terms of of what's taking place. And I, and I almost wonder, you know, now in, in the modern era, in the digital era, w- will this narrative actually fade away? Will have we hit maybe a peak of the UFO story, and will that give way to uh, other kind of new facts, new discontinuous realities, new kind of digital experiences as our lives get increasingly defined by you know, digital stimulus, yeah. um, will, will that change? I think we're right now we're at this point in history where now I think 50% of our stimulus comes from electronic devices and the other 50 comes from natural experience, whatever that, that means. And, and the other interesting thing about being alive right now is that this is also, you know, an unprecedented era of intense stimulus. We've never had yeah. more stimulus, you know, whether it's in our, what's in our houses, what we're having in contact with. And, and you think about the future and, and Valet kind of outlines this, you know, he gives a couple of interesting scenarios for what's to come in the digital future. 
and uh, and and one of them is is, is you know it's just the notion that there's going to be new facts. There's new facts, and are we ready for the improbable of what's going to take place? Are we ready for these impossible stories that are that are coming down the line, and 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 new facts that are going to get created, whole new narratives. And, and, and are we, I don't think we're prepared as a society for what's coming around the corner because the, the digital revolution, you know, makes the uh, industrial revolution look like a bunch of ants building a hill. Yeah, it does. And uh, while you're saying that, I'm thinking the reason that you're on this show and Bruce was on this show and, you know, uh, Jeremy Vaney, Jeff Ritzman, Tyler Koch, John, um, Paul Kimball, Nick all the way back was part of that. Um, subconsciously, I think I'm, I'm trying to get people to help me rewrite the script somehow, or at least an open end it mm-hmm. or um, give people more choices in what they assign to the paranormal or what they assign to as a UFO story. If that makes any sense. Yeah, I, I think it does. It does, uh, because I think we're in an era now where, you know, we, we're, we're overwhelmed by stories. Like, we're overwhelmed by stories and overwhelmed by narratives. But yeah. when I take a look at the lives that people lead, I think we're very removed from any concepts of natural. And I, I maybe every age says this, oh, change is happening. I can't believe those things the kids are into these days. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're, we're always in a transition. But I, the transition now is pretty rapid, and, and we're seeing its impact on on youth. Youth are getting very disorganized. Uh, they're they're under more stress than they've ever been uh, before, and we're, we're documenting uh, those pieces. There and, and the types of narratives that they're encountering are are hallucinatory on a, on another level altogether. You know, because it's there are in fact disembodied voices that are contacting them. They're coming through Twitter. They're people that they don't even know. They're they're posting things on them. They're friending people they're completely unaware of. Yeah. Um, and and I had a great night in my class. I've got this one. I was going to ask you. That's like okay. From your point of view as a high school teacher, how do, how do, how does this manifest? Go ahead. Well, well, it's pretty interesting. I ask kids. You know, I've got this experiment running called the community narrative, where where uh, we're, I'm working and I, I I teach leadership classes. I used to teach ComTech classes where I would watch kids make art because that was the most fun thing in the world to do. And, <laughs> and 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 in that time period, I promoted this concept of you know tell your story. You know, tell your story through the digital. Don't emulate. Don't give the, give me the next Coke product. Make something new and original and, and make it yours. And yeah. so I always encourage kids to be original in the products that they make. Um, and so now I teach leadership classes and, and leadership classes, I'm kind of interested in giving kids strategies uh, for success. You know, how do you help keep yourself calm? So I teach a lot of, I teach Buddhism, I teach storytelling, I teach uh, being active in your community, I teach ideas of equity, and I, and I encourage kids to go find the stories that matter to them and speak these stories. So whether they speak their own story. So I do things at school called community uh, forums where I bring, you know, we pick a topic, gender-based violence, racism, uh, mental health, you know, and I bring staff and students together to share their stories so that we kind of look at narratives that really mean something uh, to them. And, and in my class, we have a computer lab in there and I ask kids, you know, to post. So I run a lot of my class off of blogs. And so kids post different narratives that are important. And the one kid posted this great narrative uh, that they had uh, tacked down from a friend's Twitter account where this girl is sitting at home and all of a sudden she starts hearing voices in, in the house. And, and the voices are very haunting and kind of very disturbing. And then she starts to realize the voices are coming through the TV set. And the, the voices are, uh, are starting to name the names of the people in the house. It's starting to talk almost to her using people's names and, 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 and things that she's very familiar with. Yeah. And then suddenly she realizes her phone has been hacked. The person has 
connected to her TV set through the phone. It's all digitally connected now. And this disembodied voice is coming through. <laughs> you know, it scared the hell out of her. You know, she thought ghosts were in the house. Yeah. There. So this is, you know, an interesting kind of digital manifestation. But if you, you push it a little bit further, think of how malware will work in the future. You know, in the future, you're going to get phone calls uh, from like some type of software program that's synthesized maybe the voices of people you know, uh, yeah. synthesized uh, the dead. And they're having conversations with you. It's going to be utterly surreal. Yeah, you know, they're or, going to be fishing, yeah, they're be fishing you, for information. Yeah. If you give too much information out online, which everybody does and has, that's right. That's right. The AI that it's going to that's going to be running the, the the software, the AI software will engage you on a personal level to the point where. You might get to the point where you can't hang up until you've bought something from them. Yeah, that's right. Well, one of the things that's manifesting among the kids, the stress level is huge. Uh, self-esteem issues are highly questionable. Like not only do they think about, um, you know, what to wear and, and how to look, but yeah. they even question their own thoughts. Like is it okay to think certain things lest they be judged by their peers uh, about this? So I thought that was kind of heady that, that kids are having those. Uh, pieces, you know, the online bullying, self-esteem elements are are, are quite profound. Yeah. So the, the the teenage thought crime thing is is uh, used to be just things you said. Now you can't even think things. The other thing that's happening is is there's a total experiment taking place in society right now with pornography, uh, because never before has pornography been accessible in such a, a, a hot, huge volume. And, you know, it's one of the narratives that, that hardly any parents actually talk to their kids about, which is pretty sad because when parents do talk to their kids about sex, they're less likely to figure it out and engage in it themselves, you know, or experiment with it. Um, so because they already know, as long as they trust their parents. That's right. And, and, and so, and if they can have those open dialogues with parents in those kind of safe spaces, and I can, I can see that, like, I can immediately see inside my class, it takes about a month where I can tell, okay, who, who's got a stable home life? Uh, who's experiencing violence? Uh, who's you know got got weird stuff that's happened to them already? Who's feeling major self esteem issues? Who, whose parents are going through divorce? I mean, it's evident in the children's um, behavior that that's taking place. So I think that's kind of very very disruptive uh, to their lives. So for them, the the digital technologies, you know, they, they also feel like they have to be on all the time. You know, they have to be engaged. So when the buzz goes through, they're they're it's, cre- it's creating what's called an emergency response. Amongst youth, where they feel like they have to respond to things uh, immediately, and um, and I think the pornography piece is interesting because I, I work with uh, some different organizations in the community uh, and who work with you know marginalized youth, kids who are, who, are, who come from really difficult home lives, who have violence in their life, or they've experienced you know sexual violence uh, before. So that's the one group specifically, and and so not only are kids watching porn, but and, and are they sexting? You've heard you know kids are sexting each other left and right, even though if they're told that you know you're you're a distributor of pornography. And I ask kids like, kids, how common is this?" And they're like, "Oh, everybody's doing it." You know, I said, but, but don't you know, you know that it's a crime, right? That you could be charged. And, yeah, but who cares? You know, people do it anyways type of thing. And, and in talking with this agency, not only are kids are sexing, they're making their own pornography. They're emulating the things that they see. They're emulating the narratives that they see out there. And they're not making pornography to make money. They're just putting it out there because that's what they see. That's what's happening. You know, that, that's the thing to do. Yeah. And when I, when I heard that, I was like, okay, that's very interesting in terms of how we do, you know, emulate the narratives that are around us and start creating, you know, realities based on the scripts that are provided to right, us. Right, right. It's, it's very powerful. Yeah, very much so. I mean, it, it, <laughs> never, never mind about, you know, how people think of you or anything like that. It's just the, the, that's a very basic thing. 
I mean, it's mm-hmm. a very basic drive. And I don't, I don't think you, it, it, the way you describe it, if you were at that age, I don't think you could escape it. No, it would take, an, it would take a lot of effort to try and stay out of it. Well, I, I ask kids, you know, because there's some kids you see, they never whip a phone out. And so I engage them, you know, so, so what's going on? How come you never pull out a phone? How come you don't seem like you're wrapped up in some of this digital uh, stuff? And some of them have been down that road and pulled themselves out of it. Wow. Others uh, others don't see the advantage of it. Like they, they get offended when other people in the mid-conversation, you know, answer their phone. They think that's very insulting. So they just go silent and wait for the person to finish. Um, yeah. Some of them host parties where it's like, okay, drop your device in the basket so we can have FaceTime conversation because that's one of the great, you know, I think dilemmas of, of I've heard of that, that too. Yeah. Yeah. Cause everything's kind of reduced to a tweet now, you know, and, and, and emoticons aren't doing it, you know, like in terms of expressing your emotional thoughts and, and inner narratives, you know, you need to have those, you know, one theorist says that the kids are too busy having conversational sipping instead of long, deep drinks of conversation, you know, yeah, the way yeah. that, you know, that, that's what I think is captivating about your show and captivating about radio is, you know, radio forces you to engage in the imaginary practices and those kind of creative practices, natural creative practices in, in the brain, you know, McLuhan called it a hot medium unlike television that's cold and and, and you know it tells you how to be tells yeah. you to be yeah passive it's, it's a lot easier to be passive with it that's right and, and so it's so a radio is really exciting and still alive and, and and vital in the same way i guess the theater is still alive and, and vital um but a lot of the other mediums are, are a bit more challenging. And, and you know, as, as much as Jeffrey Kripal talks about how important and central, you know, the literary narrative is and how, we, you know, that we're, we're writing our, our futures where, where the, these impossible paranormal experiences are, he says, are, are, are interwoven into, you know, the, the act of, of writing, he says. Yeah. So he says, you know, he says Mark Twain talked about uh, mental telegraphy and automatic writing and the psychic reader, you know? And so it's all about, you know, reading and writing and, and communications. Well, look at the nature of communications that kids have today. It's very fractured. It's very brief. It's not based on kind of a, a, a deeply expressed reality. Uh, uh, emotions are not, you know, going along with it. So we're, we're entering into almost like that hive mind space, right? When you think about it, I think that human beings are almost at an interesting vulnerable point, vulnerable point in their society. You know, we've surrendered all of our privacy. Uh, mm-hmm. We've totally bought into the surveillance society. Yeah. Uh, all of our information we've distributed. At one point, Valet brings up, he says, you know, one of the, the disturbing scenarios of the future he calls is a uh, participatory dictatorship. And he describes, <laughs> how, and he, he describes how, you know, the Russians, you know, managed to, you know, invade and take over, um, you know, different countries just by having a collection of index cards of who are the important people in society. And they were rounded them all up and, you know, and, and who are the naysayers who are anti-communists and brought them in. They only asked them one question. Who do you know? Who do you know? And who do you talk to? He says, nowadays, you know, the, the people who control the web or who are above the web, they already know who you talk to. And they know yeah. what you talk about. It's, it's already been a done deal. They want to take you out. You're finished. Yeah. You know? and, yeah. and so I think that's kind of interesting. We do live in, in a unique age because at the same time, look at the collaborative power of the web. You know, the ability to share information. Uh, you and I talking, you know, right now, you know, across time zones, uh, across, you know, across this continent uh, here in two different parts of um of North America are able to share some really interesting, intimate uh, material and, and, and create ideas together. Um, so there's some real power, right. That comes with, with the web and with connectivity. Right. So will it, will it go that way? 
or will it go another way where we end up getting coded? You know, my wife always says uh, her, her futurist that she reads uh, uh, says um, either uh, program or be programmed. And, and that's, I think, our future. That we're and, you, and it's, well, you can be uh, apocalyptic about it and say it's much easier to be programmed. It's much easier to be passive. It's much easier to not think. And it's much easier to consume. That's so right. Where do you think most of this will go? <laughs> well, I'm I'm trying to work against it because I like to be optimistic. Yeah, I, I am too. I mean, you you person. do stuff you do stuff even though you think it's hopeless because it's the thing you do. You can't Sorry, that, not that just, do it. Uh, skyped out on me. Sorry, it, the thing you do is the is the thing you know it's the thing you do because you can't not do it. That's right. I can't not communicate with people. I just can't. So now that's because you've got that drive. You know, we're part of an interesting generation because we grew up with the web. So, so we actually have some ideas about it. We've integrated it. And we've decided what we're going to accept, what we're going to reject. Yeah, it's not invisible it. to us like television was. That's right. Now, children, on the other hand, and, and this is my theory, I think that in the future, we're going to look back at the time period, this last 10, 15 years, where we freely distributed devices to children and said, go be online, you know, on their own, uh, without, without helping them or supporting them. We're going to look at that as more dangerous than cigarettes. You know, the way that we promote yeah. cigarette smoking to youth, we're going to look at this as like the great mental health crisis. You know, I, I like to be optimistic and positive about the nature of the future and that we don't have to give in to just the, the, what, to be consumers, right, to be happy consumers. So what I try to do with kids is I say, listen, you know, you are the Canadians specifically. We're some of the highest yeah. consumers of web content in the world and we're the lowest producers. So, so in my class, if you're going to research ideas and research topics, you have to make product as well, too. And you've got to make product that you can distribute online and it's got to be product that's important to you. It's, it's things that you've researched that's got validity and, and you're, you're engaged in social change or social action in some way. Right, you can't just lie down and accept it. You know the, the way that you know that new product Echo. Have you heard of that? No. It's a product. I don't work you, with kids, so I don't know about this new stuff. <laughs> well, this is a, actually an Amazon dot uh, com product uh, thing, and what it is is it's a tube that you put inside your house, and it's kind of like Siri. You know, it's something you can talk to. Uh, but what it does is it records all the conversations. And it kind of searches through all the things that you're talking about, and then it brings product right to your door. So you've been talking about going vacation and where you want to go. Suddenly, Echo props up and says, hey, there's a great, you know, set of plane tickets on sale to Costa Rica right now. And you've been talking about that lately, so maybe you want this. And, oh, hey, you know that tennis racket that you were thinking about? Well, here it is. And so it's actually have made. They think people are going to make a conscious decision to have this kind of surveillance. And I guess they are. Yes, they are. Oh. <laughs> exactly, right? So this is the thing. People are really into their consumption and to their products and their kind of ephemeral uh, you know, product lifestyles and are very interested in the next big thing. So I think that's kind of sad. And then what works against that then are you know more important narratives where people are making claims to individuality, claims to being a creative mind, claims to being an art artist, claims to being independent, right? And and I think you can facilitate those claims in society by ensuring kids get up on the microphone and, and have their say, you know, in front of large audiences. And I'm in a high school with 2,200 kids, so when I do a community forum or do an assembly that's uh, youth led, uh, then there's at least 500 people in the audience, and kids get used to being broadcasters in person and and they see the power and the effect of that because kids come up to them you know afterwards in school and say wow i heard you say this 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 i saw you in that video and you were da 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 and i think that kind of 
power of communication and, and, and the sharing of narratives and, and, and talking about narratives that have real value to us, I think that's, that's one way of escaping, you know, that really bizarre, disturbed consumer, you know, reality. Yeah, I'm just thinking now. I every year, the only the lecture I do every year for Weird California, I go and talk to like 300 sixth graders. Lovely. And I have no idea what their world is like. I really don't. And I come in, and, and apparently they like the lecture. I mean, it's engaging to them. And I, I, I don't know why it is, except for the fact that I say any of you can do this. Any of you can go. And see these things. Any of you can write about them. And you should. I mean, it's it's just wonderful. You, you'll, you'll see and hear and experience and talk to people that you never thought. Just just try it. And when you say this to me, I, the first thing I think is I, I, I'm glad I said those things. Yeah. Uh, because it, it Essentially, the the principal came up to me after, and he said, "That's the only time I've ever had a uh, the last one I did. That's the only time I've ever had an assembly where I didn't have to tell everybody to shut up." <laughs> well, it, it, and I think you. And what's you, the hook there? I don't know what the hook is, except that I'm telling them stuff that they're essentially "quote unquote" not supposed to know. That's right, and we're very curious creatures. You know, as children, we love to hear about the things that we don't know about. And and so I th- what you're doing is you're empowering curiosity, right? Empowering discovery. Empowering- well, you sound like you're doing it times a hundred, which is why it's just <laughs> like, oh yeah, okay, I understand. Because Mario did the same thing. He would. He that's the thing he told me. He said, if I if I tell a disturbed child somebody who's apparently a problem, if I tell them stuff that they're quote unquote not supposed to know, they become engaged. Nine mm-hmm. times out of ten, more than that, even. They'll be engaged because they're not supposed to know this thing, and maybe they're being let in on a secret or something. It's not really, but it's not something they're taught. That's right. And I think when you give, when you turn over, you know, the keys to the kingdom to kids, or you give them that empowerment capacity to say, listen, you can go and discover this. You can go and challenge belief structures. You can go and challenge, you know, the existing norms. And in fact, it's exciting when you do that because you should be disruptive. You should, you know, participate in, in social disruption. And, and so I don't advocate kids, you know, go be the anarchist, uh, per se, but, but if they want to, I'm not going to say no. Yeah. Um, but, I, but I do empower them to say, you go and construct reality in the way that you think that you should. You think that's going to benefit you, benefit your community, that's going to you know, uplift people. You know? And I think those are the narratives we really need to, to work on selling to kids. Because if we don't sell those narratives to them, they're going to get caught up in the consumer yeah. uh, drama medicine. And you look at you know, anorexia and bulimia. I mean, yeah. those are diseases of the mind. Those are narrative diseases. Those are images that have convinced people that they should be a certain way. And now France has actually had to go and legislate, you know, uh, that body, that certain, you know, body shapes are, I think, I can't remember what they're, they're measuring. They're measuring um, uh, the models, the, the, the bottles, right? And, and their body masses and whether or not, if they're too thin, then they're going to be charged because their bodies are illegal. That's fascinating that yeah. we've had to actually come that far in order to <laughs> reorient people's brains. That you know what you're doing is totally unhealthy, but you can't stop people once they've engaged in the script. Once they've engaged in the script of this is how I see reality, and 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 you see this, you know, like let's say in um, like poltergeist cases, uh, I think are interesting. You know, like what's the the to the German gal Amy Michelle? Is that her name? Uh, and. And Annalise Michelle. That's right. It's I've got recordings of her actually uh, yeah. uh, with, <laughs> during the exorcism, and she she actually died from it. 
That's right. You know, and so there's parents who have super, their belief system have superseded their care for their daughter. And they've even convinced daughter that she herself is mad and insane and is, you know, um, is, is evil and is satanic, you know, when maybe at the very least she was, was maybe sexually curious, you know, and that yeah. got converted into something else altogether. And now she's the demon and she's the beast and she dies. It, yeah. It's really completely well, that, that, tragic. Th- yeah, that fit the narrative that they want. Exactly. Like you said, that fit the narrative that they wanted to fit for that person at that time and their belief structure. That's right. That's right. In fact, I think the Catholic Church pretty much disowned what happened with her very soon after she died. I mean, they didn't they didn't want anything to do with it. And of course it, not. Yeah, because mainly because probably because of the <laughs> liability issues, but sure. But you know, but they had done the, the programming. That's right. They've done the programming, and, and the programming is vast. You know, Catholicism's got some interesting pieces uh, to it in terms of how that narrative or belief system worms into people's brains because parents are still busy exercising their kids, you know, and kids are still dying from dehydration and being tied down. That's not, you know, something that happened decades ago. That's still around. Uh, today, people are still doing pretty weird stuff because of belief systems and narratives that have been imposed upon them that they've agreed. Okay, well, that's the script I should follow. Yeah, and well, without a without a, a sense of equity on that script, because I, I would I would venture to say that um, most Catholics, especially American North American ones, are probably a little more equ- equ- equitable in the way that they apply their catechism or whatever you want to call it. Sure. Oh, that you know, and that goes for any belief system. If you got a that's sense right. of equity about it. Mm-hmm. And maybe a little sense of that doesn't work for me, so screw that. Um, well, there's, there's or that part are. of it um, that, that that's that's very valuable. Uh, well, I think there's a range. Like when you look at Catholicism, there's a range, right? Because there's like I think the liberation uh, theologists, you know, Oscar Romero, people challenging, you know, South American, you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, dictators and and what have you, and they right. sacrifice their lives for fighting for almost a communist agenda and the and the. The Vatican was not really that supportive of them because they were busy critiquing, you know, the powers that be. And now we've got a different pope that's uh, sitting there who's championing the poor and perhaps it even more in line with those um, those types of ideas that say, yeah. you know, let's let's take a look at what goodness well, actually looks like. Yeah, I hope part of it is because he has some sort some measure of compassion and not just because he realizes that the, if the church does not uh, evolve, it's going to die. I yeah. think I think he really realizes that. And I hope. Somewhere in there is is a, a a sense of compassion that drives that, rather than just a sense of survival. Now, I, I know I had uh, talked to you a little bit about you know the the UFO story at the beginning, and and I wanted to connect it a bit to Bruce Duensing's notion of you know the deconstructive uh, yeah. events that are taking place. Sure, thank so, you for so bringing us back. <laughs> no problem. Well, I was, well, the link is is the the whole Pope piece, right? And and how the Vatican really disavowed and swept under the rug. All of those uh, sexual assault and pedophilic, right, uh, right. pedophilia pieces, right? And so up the street from me lived a guy who uh, tried to bring charges against one of the principals from my Catholic high school that I went to in, in Sault Ste. Marie. Uh-huh. And not only the one principal, but the second principal, he's actually cur- currently up on charges now. Now, both these guys I thought were nice guys. You know, when I went to school, but the one of them, he, in fact, is guilty for sexual assaults all across Canada and even in the Caribbean. Uh, The the ages, genders didn't make a difference to him up and down the place. And yet he was looked at as a pillar of the, the community. And so when I look at within my city. 
you know, within my city, I can take a look within my own neighborhood who was affected by some of the sexual assaults that the, the school board kind of swept under the table. Marriages dissolved, kids committed uh, suicide, attempted suicide, uh, people lived terribly depressed lives, you know, and, and all within like a, a short distance around me. And but when I start to look at, you know, what happened in a short distance around me, I think I had also mentioned to you there was a, you know, a murder yeah. event where the one guy took out his entire family. There's all kind of weirdnesses that were, were going on. And we even at one point in time had... You live in this, some kind uh, of evil vortex over there? Well, you, you'd think that it sounds like that, right? But but I think if you investigate any suburban neighborhood, you'll see the horror is kind of just below the surface. Right, uh, right, there. right. But, and, and Listen to David North- Lynch. Yeah, and when you're in northern Ontario, things are even weirder. You know, the smaller your your community, the more strange and surreal it can be. And and the one I, I wanted to tell the story of the dope man because I think this yeah. is just such classic. I looked that up and I found material. nothing on it. <laughs> no, and, and 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 there's very little there. This is like a unique to my city. There was a story that was in the newspapers of this guy that had been seen wearing a cape and a big black hat, and he had shown a knife to kids and uh, had had called himself the dope man. And he was appearing at the different grade schools, and the two grade schools sit on either side of the bush. And my my, uh, dead end ended in this big bush that was there that routinely every summer and spring had bear traps uh, set up there. Uh, (laughs) And and, and we went looking for the dope man one time because he was hitting the news all the time, and and nobody had really seen him at all. But but other witnesses were, were there, and so remember we scoured the bush looking for him one day, and the one news article finally hit where he had been seen by neighbors across the street from my grade school that I that I went to and he was seen on top of the school with his cape and his hat and and playing tiptoe through the tulips on a on a little um a mandolin uh yes exactly and I thought what a surreal incredible story you know and so for me it makes total sense the seeing of, of my UFO kind of works with Singh's piece of, you know, those yeah. deconstructivist events that all kind of circle around a certain area. Because when I look at who's on the rink with me, well, on the rink is a guy whose parents are busy separating. My own parents are going through, you know, some interesting, you know, kind of violent uh, uh, pieces. And, uh, and the gal who's with us, her own family was completely bar- bizarre and twisted and manifested in her chasing us around with her brother's switchblade around the house at various points. And we're the ones that are seeing the UFO experience. <laughs> The ones that, and, and then the kid that I go to whose house where we climbed the ladder, yeah. he himself, his, his mom was like uh, completely drunk and unconscious most of the time. And, and he's also a participant in these kind of deconstructivist uh, pieces that, that were unfolding there. So, so it all kind of makes sense that these things you know, cycle around, that, that the stresses and pressures that, that people are experiencing that are running contrary to certain narratives. How do these now connect to this, this sudden manifestation yeah. of something or, or, or and, and, and is it that, or, or am I just connecting dots? You know, that that was one of the questions yeah, that I, I don't know. Like you know, it's, it starts to sound like uh, a Mothman kind of thing. You know, it, it really does. And, and I'm kind of critical of the Mothman. You read Keel's Mothman; it sounds like a hard-boiled detective novel. You know, yeah, well, you should read Silver Bridge too in con- in concert with it. In fact, that, after right. you read. Um, yes, I Mothman prophecies. Yeah, yeah I, I haven't hit that one yet, and, and perhaps that'll open it up for me more. But I, but I think there is something to that, you know, that and because the, now this is what Kripal talks about, right? That the mythic story, the mythic story is the story that is trying to reveal to us, you know, the real kind of structure of reality. Oh yeah, the, the, the underpinnings is, that are, that you see uh, uh, above the above the surface. 
That's right. You know, and, and, and that reality is, is far stranger. And perhaps we're often disavowing, you know, just how strange and, and weird reality really is because we've agreed on these other social narratives, these narratives of cohesion, these narratives right. of the nuclear family. You know, everybody's okay inside their home. But you know what? You look inside the homes inside my street. And I lived in a nice middle class suburban neighborhood, yet the violence and the weirdness that was surrounding there, wow, something else altogether. You know, so I, I think that that there perhaps is something to the notion that the the nature of reality is obviously much more disturbing and weird than we think it is, and we've just sold ourselves on on these kind of normative uh, narratives to try to keep us trucking along. It's very easy to create, like you said, create a narrative that is uh, more comforting to your to your mind and to the society and to everybody around you, and to keep the gears running and all that far easier to do that than to face the what what may actually be going on um below the surface i'm you know it starts to make me think what the hell is going on in my neighborhood because I, <laughs> I you know w- w- everybody in the neighborhood you know it was in a middle class neighborhood too but it was nobody really talked to each other that much this is in yeah. san diego in california you know we, everybody's friendly and all that but nobody like hung out with each other or anything like that everybody had their own kingdom in their house that's right and you had no idea what was going on in there even if you spent time over there you kind of didn't know what was going on in there yep it's a very you never really think about it you know it makes you think about like i just said a little bit earlier it makes you think about david lynch a little bit more that's right oh yeah lynch Lynch makes total sense to me like i think his uh his movies are are bang on Uh, i think lost highways is brilliant and and so is mulholland uh, drive Uh, these are really really good examinations of how you know narrative exchanges how narratives and identity uh break down and reconstruct and rescript very very quickly yeah, you know, and yeah. happen very fast, and happen often amongst the backdrop of what, on the surface, appears to be, you know, very nice and happy blue velvet. Everything's la 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 la, yeah. and then suddenly, what's underneath is extremely disturbing and and disorienting. And it, perhaps this is the real structure of society. So I think in the neighborhood that I live in right now, I live in a pretty calm, relaxed, what's considered to be the safest city in in Canada, and uh, because we have very very low crime rate. But when I first moved to this town. There was a teenage girl that was run over, hit and run at the end of the street. At that same area, there's a set of apartment buildings where a serial rapist was operating. And this guy was twisted and bizarre and had the entire city of 100,000 people on complete edge. The man across the street from me at one point in time was videotaped by my next door neighbor. He was swinging a gas can around his head and threatening to light himself on, on fire. And then the other man, two doors down, took a gun one day to his work and shot himself because he was about to lose his entire uh, family and home and uh, and everything had gone south. Now, th- those are just a few little interrelated stories of the ones that I, that I know about. It sounds like you live in hell there, Robert. <laughs> but you know what? It is a calm, relaxed, happy-go-lucky neighborhood. Kids are fine. My kids are fine. Everybody's having a great time. All of those stories are buried stories, right? It sounds like fine in quotes. Well, I, I don't know about that. I think that everywhere you go, if you start to investigate and peel back the surface a little bit, right. what you're going to see, in fact, is something much more surreal. The real structure is buried underneath. And, yeah. and so when we think about how do we parallel these things, you know, maybe the UFO uh, scenario or the schizoid uh, kind of experience of, of things being unreal. Well, we work, we compensate a lot 
in our society. We compensate a lot by pretending things are quite normal and, and we bury things. We don't reveal things. I know this from working with youth. Kids do not like to let out of the door. This is my story. This is what happened to me. This is how I grew up. It was terrifying. And yet we know that what the statistics are, the statistics for sexual abuse amongst youth are actually significant. Yeah. Yet how many of these stories do we ever hear? So people are burying a lot of stuff in society, and uh, we prefer to have just simple narratives instead or, or, or construct narratives that seem to come up with really easy answers uh, for us and just deny you know, the, the real internal structure that's taking place. All right. I had no idea that our conversation would go in this direction, and it's wonderful. Neither did I. <laughs> <laughs> for, for your second I, I, interview. <laughs> I'd, I'd wanted to like keep it light. <laughs> I was planning on talking about Chris Ritzkowski's ink theory. Yes, well, why was... don't we talk about that? That's fine. And we can also so, talk about the, the sky art thing and if you had any flying questions. Yes, yes. Okay, so well, let's talk about the ink theory, and that maybe will be a transition into to something else. So Ritzkowski ends his book. He's uh, part of this uh, group, I guess, in Manitoba uh, there. And they, I don't know, if you, have you ever interviewed him or talked with him? No, but now I'm, I'm, it's gonna. It's look it looks like I have. I've had some interaction with him online, and you know, and I know what his I know what his uh, deal is, and I know how he thinks, and I admire it. But I haven't really gotten into exactly what it is because the thing is, yeah. when I mention things here and there, and we have this light conversation, it's always very positive, and I know what he's talking about. Yeah, I, I think he's really good. I think he's very straight. He's very detailed. He's bringing science to it. He's the one that's producing with his team of people. What are they called? They're the Ufology Research of Manitoba, UFORAM. And, yeah. and I think that's the team that is bringing, you know, an annual survey, very detailed, very scientific, really good survey results, lots of good categorization uh, breakdowns. And, uh, and so he's got a very clear and clean head about it. And he also has a very significant piece about the witness and being compassionate uh, about the witness. Right. Uh, but he also has a great And it, sense and of it sounds like not very much ego there at all, which is really uh, important. None. This is what works well with you, just like yourself. You're a very humble uh, person and, and Chris Krakowski humility written all over the sky. Yeah. And um, so, but he closed, he's got a great sense of humor, though. He's absolutely hilarious. So he closes <laughs> his, his book with uh, a unified theory to explain UFO phenomenon, including abductions. And his theory is called the Ink Theory, which is the Alien Incompetency Theory. Which just <laughs> <laughs> so he describes A-I-N-T. That's right. The Alien Incompetency Theory, yes. where he describes that, you know what? The, the basically what's going on, aliens are totally incompetent. They're crashing their ships all over the place. Right. They keep telling us they're going to, you know, save the planet and have these messages. They do right. nothing about it whatsoever. They're, they're stumbling around in the woods. And that was, there was the one UFO story I was going to get you to play about the guy where he runs over the aliens where he like, he sees I, them. You know running what? Around. I may put that at the end of the show. I'll just add okay. it in. Okay. Good. Cause he sees them like running around, you know, in the road and then he, he runs, runs one of them over and he's about to get out of his car thinking that's the thing you do. And then he realized, well, wait a second. No, these are like aliens from this glowing light. I saw him getting back in my car and taken off. In his rearview mirror, you can see they, all the alien kind of these bulbous uh, head figures are, are standing and gathering around. Perhaps their, their lost friend that got hit on the road. What the, <laughs> hell what the hell they're doing running on the road? Who the hell knows? And then he goes home and he spends like two hours trying to figure out, okay, what the hell could have possibly happened? And then he just goes to bed. And I thought it was a great, great punchline to that piece. And then but, he just goes to bed, yeah. But do you know the uh, the Donald Trump story? The broken, broken bow, the guy who's up in the tree, 
and there's the aliens that are trying to get him. Uh, is that the uh, the uh, the one from California in the '60s? Yes, yes, it's like that's one of my favorite ones. I can't remember yes. the I can't remember the name of the the. It's all you know. It's always done by the location, but that's one of my favorite. Where the robots come up to him and it's like that, that, spray gas out of their mouths, that, and he passes that's out. The one. Yeah, that's one. So now that's a great story, and I think it fits the alien incompetency theory because this guy is hitting is up in a tree, you know, the entire night. And he climbs up in the tree because he's lost, right? He's with his hunting party, and, yeah. and he's lost, and he's alone. So he, that's what you do to be safe. You climb up a tree so predators, you know, coyotes aren't going to nibble on you while you're you're out there. So while he's out there, he can hear something coming through the woods, and suddenly these two humanoid characters of about five feet tall are coming through the woods, and they're like boosting one up the tree to try to get themselves up the tree. <laughs> and then he takes pieces down. of his clothing and lights them on fire and throws That's it at right. them and they back off a little bit. I mean, it, it yeah. sounds, it sounds like a cartoon. It's totally cartoonish. And then the robot shows up who's wafting gas up there and knocks him out. <laughs> yeah. And then he's shooting an arrow at the robot. Then the guys come back. Then he's lighting more things on fire and sending stuff there. And then at one point, two robots show up and the two robots join together. Their eyes lock. They're like exchanging energy. And then a big waft of cloud stuff comes up and totally knocks him out when he's sitting up at the top. Of the it's completely hilarious and ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. You know? So the aliens are completely I think it's called Cisco Grove. I, I, it could be, could be. Yeah, I think that was it. Cisco Grove CE3. Right. And uh, and, and in his interview is actually in that that uh, the the Wendy O'Connor's Faded Discs, the humanoid uh, contact collection. They talked to him? Yes. He, oh, man, very, I got to hear that one. Yeah, it's, it's a really good one because he had no contact, right? Like he did not uh, blow it up. He worked for what? He worked not for a military company, but for like somebody who was making bombs or yeah, something. Yeah, a, con- a contractor, defense contractor. <laughs> That's right. And so his story was silenced. He didn't want to go public with it. So there's just this one interview. Uh, that's there. And uh, following his interview, he does get brought to like onto the military base. He gets brought to a base where there's an empty house and like the two, you know, dudes show up, right? To give him the big interview and they tell him, okay, look, what you saw, you saw Boy Scouts. You saw a set of Boy Scouts and and, and everything you're telling us is not true. So they totally are squashing the narrative, right? Like that, that whole weirdo narrative, that's not allowed to exist. That cannot go out into society. And I don't think it's about any conspiracy piece or that they know what's going on. No, no, they're just scared of the story. Totally, right? You cannot have these stories kind of go in. And I think that's what's interesting about, you know, American history and ufology because post, you know, 60s, civil rights era, uh, post-Vietnam protest, you know, the youth are suddenly coming into their own. People are asking for equality. Uh, women want rights. All these things are happening. Like the, the, the societal narrative is starting to fragment and break up. And you bring this UFO piece into it where people are telling utterly surreal stories. I mean, forget trying to ban marijuana. You know, it's like people, <laughs> you got to stop these UFO stories from getting loose. They're completely psychedelic. Yeah. You know, they make no sense. So I think the alien incompetency theory is kind of interesting uh, when you think about it because yeah. you know, we're, we're seeing. No, it's, 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 a, it's kind of a joke, but it also has, a, like any good joke, it has a serious point. It, it really, really does. And, and I think it tells us something about, you know, again, what's happening internally uh, in terms of the nature of the narratives, because, you know, our own brain doesn't often make a lot of sense or forces <laughs> sense. You know, it forces sense. Sense on nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. Or it what forces, it thinks is nonsense. That's right. And, and it tries to bring something, uh, uh, tries to make sense of, of experiences there. And when it doesn't make sense and it's improbable, that's, I think, where fear and other things rush in. And before you know it, you, you're, you're a little de- stabilized 
there. Yeah. Two two things. One, uh, listener Steve Ray says, are you gonna, guys going to talk about uh, Robert's Ouija addiction? <laughs> uh, we can do that if you like. A little bit. I, yeah. I we, we, little, essentially, can... clock time, we have like, ten, like 13, 15 minutes. But as long as you're okay with it, let's finish what we want to talk about. Okay. Yeah. So what about this Ouija addiction? So I'll, I'll give you the short form version of it because uh, what happened was I think it was grade 12. I mean, uh, after I had exhausted, you know, the UFO piece, uh, basically, from there, I kind of moved on to investigating the city I was living in. Because yeah. the city I was living in, I thought was pretty surreal and bizarre and had all these weird stories, strange events that were taking place. So I started researching its history and, and out of the history. So I became a big fan of the library and I learned how to use the microfiche. And what oh, I yes. discovered uh, in le- reading through the microfiche was that my city was basically founded by a bunch of Ku Klux Klan that came up through the states. And uh, when the states disbanded <laughs> the KKK, they sent a bunch of them up, went up through Michigan and went to Sault Ste. Marie, Canada. And the other bunch went into the prairies and settled in Alberta and created, you know, a whole conservative uh, politic uh, out there. Yeah. So that's kind of the, the weirdness of what centers, you know, as, as the center of my city. So, um I started Ouijaing as the next thing because you know uh, to take place. Uh, somebody gave me a board. I don't know where the board came from, but I immediately started Ouijaing with a bunch of friends. And it's uh, it's a pretty uh, familiar script. I'm sure you understand how it goes. You contact yeah. this young girl. The young girl's name is Heather. She's an innocent little child. She's talking about how her dad burnt you know the house down and killed all of them in it, and now she's this loose floating disembodied spirit, right? And my Ouija sessions ranged from, like, me and another close friend to three, four. Sometimes we'd have five or six people, you know, on the board together. And if you know the Conjuring Philip uh, Yes, story, I was going to mention that. Right? So uh, I, I, you know, I later on went and researched Conjuring Philip and was kind of struck how close this kind of paralleled the ideas about Heather uh, there. Because Heather suddenly came alive in the world, like for us. Like, we became very fixated on wanting to find out uh, the, her details of her story. And I was really bent on researching on, is this true? So yeah. I spent... Supposedly, hours, it was a girl that had died, I, I guess? That, yeah, that she had died. Her father had set the house on fire and killed everybody in it. Oh, okay. And then she, she gave you all these details, and then you went, this yes. sounds like something yes, that happened so to me, actually. So, so I researched. She, she was giving me dates, you know, um, yeah. um, uh, months, uh, years, that sort of thing. So, and we had taught the Ouija to double spell. So every time she would spell something, she would always like double tap the letter. So we'd be very sure of what was being, um, you know, being scripted out. And somebody else would transcribe all of the sessions. And I kept very detailed logs of the entire uh, thing. And so some very interesting hap- things happened along the way with the Ouija. Like there's a couple of things that happened that I can't explain. Uh, some interesting synchronicities. Uh, yep. There, uh, one time I was weeching on the board, and my father, a great doubter that he was, uh, says, um, "So uh, ask the Ouija when your uh, grandmother's birthday is, because he knows that I have no clue when my grandmother was born. She lives in a, in another country, and I say, okay, what's my grandmother's birthday?' And the Ouija dutifully spells out a, a month um, and a date." And, and he says, see, there you go. Uh, that's not your grandmother's birthday. And then my mother pipes up and says, well, wait a second. That's not your mother's birthday, but that's my mother's birthday. <laughs> and so then the session continues. My father asks more questions. He says, who am I talking to? And the name that it spells out, it made my father turn white. The name he spelled out was a man that 
I had actually just been introduced by to him. He was a man at at work at his workplace. He had just started a new family, had 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 divorced previously, married into a new family. And I remember very significantly like meeting this guy because in his house he had five different enormous uh, fish tanks in the bottom, beautiful, stunning colors. I was totally yeah. captivated, you know, as a young uh, teenager uh, looking at this stuff. Um, and my father asks, he says, "Where where are you?" And he spells out, "In hell." Now, unbeknownst to me, and my father did not tell me this, the man had committed suicide by hanging himself in his closet just, you know, a few days prior to this Ouija session huh. uh, that took place, which was very disturbed. When I heard that, I was like, whoa, that even scared me a little bit. Yeah. So we had two other really interesting incidents, well, three really interesting incidents, so short, short form of uh, these pieces. Um, one, I'm on my way to a Ouija session and uh, picking up uh, my girlfriend at, at a corner store. And as I'm walking towards there, I see this glint of gold that catches my eye in the ground. And uh, I look at it, and it's a little foot. It's a little gold charm foot. And I pick up the gold charm foot. And what's the name engraved on the back of it? Heather. Of course. Of course. Right. So wonderful uh, synchronistic uh, piece uh, there. I could never prove, uh, you know, the date of origin. I could never prove the fire. I, I researched everything I could in that newspaper uh, there. I never came co- uh, close to that. But the last contact that we had was the last big session. And I have to tell you, Ouija sessions can be very interesting. I remember one time we were Ouijaing. This one girl, she saw the planchette move with people like touching it there. And uh, she literally went over the top. Like she went into screaming hysterics, uh, felt that we were in contact with Satan, uh, that this was a demon. You know, she completely, we had to stop what we were doing and, and spent the next two hours calming this person down uh, there, which was really, it's, it's what was she doing there in the first place? Uh, she was just there as an observer. You know, she was somebody else's friend that wanted to, to come, and then she just flipped out altogether. So our last Sounds like there's some other narrative going on in her head. Well, quite possibly, you know, probably a narrative of Catholicity, you know, that, that made it too trippy uh, for her. Yeah. Um, so the last Ouija session, we're all downstairs in the basement, the group of friends, everybody who had been Ouijaing together before, and suddenly the Ouija goes south. It is no longer Heather's sweet, innocent girl. Now the Ouija is threatening. It's vile. It's the father. And he says, I have been in contact with you all along. It was never Heather. It was always me. And then he starts naming by names all the different people he's going to kill one by one. And then, and when he closes, because, you know, the, the last thing you do with the Ouija session is you go to the goodbye part at the bottom. The planchette basically just like, you know, almost pulled our hands off the table, or at least that's how we felt it was. And right at that moment, a door upstairs in my house slams shut. (laughs) (laughs) I was about to ask you when you said this was the last session. It's like, why was it the last session? Oh, you're going to tell me why it was the last session. Okay. That freaked everybody out. I am now leading a posse of people upstairs with a hockey stick in tow. And we go (laughs) to the upstairs because there's nobody upstairs at all. And all the doors are closed. In fact, all the windows are closed. We couldn't even figure out what could have even caused you know, the door to suddenly slam like that. So that was a really uh, uh, neat piece uh, yes. there. So so I thought that was kind of interesting in terms of how the, the Ouija uh, can mess with you. But, you know, when I read Conjuring Philip, uh, I had to look back at my own sessions and started to realize, you know, when you talk about the co-creation theory, yeah. Ouija is all about co-creation. This yeah. is about people who know how to spell. <laughs> <laughs> and because they know how to spell, they can all collectively anticipate what the next word is. So it doesn't matter how lightly your finger is on there. You just need one other light touch on there and you're going to spell whatever story you need to write together. It's very unconsciously done. You know, yeah. It's very unconsciously because you're very wrapped up in the narrative and you've created yeah. the narrative. So you're going to spell it out the way that you imagine right. it to unfold. And, and so it did. Yeah. Well, see, the, the next question anybody would have is, 
well, what about the synchronicities and the supposed, you know, things you're not supposed to know? Yeah. Um, so what's those, going on there? Is that, is you know that, I, really I think it's people coming unhooked from time and seeing things are going to happen in the future in some way. Well, this is one narrative that you keep coming back to over and over again is this nature of what's a relationship to time, right? Yeah, and this yeah. whole idea of, of anticipating, you know, outcomes and anticipating futures and that, you know, time is not what we think it is. You know, right. we know things are perhaps simultaneous. And I, I still have a hard time trying to wrap my head around it, but it does yeah, appear me too. that things are, things are very, very well astutely connected together. And when you talk about unhooking yourself, right, from things. So I, I was really captivated by Kripal's talk in terms of thinking about, you know, the artist and who the artist is in society and when you think about when I think about the artists that I'm really captivated by and, and I used to spend time I, my, my plan was to be a writer that was the original thing I was, was going to do and I, and I had one session of writing like a stretch of time for about a couple of weeks where I was involved in a very intense relationship uh, at university and it really kind of pushed my own personal emotional uh, boundaries uh, to the limits yeah and um, oh and I remember time, those and it, yeah, and, and that, that was my muse moment, right? And so that's where the writing just uh, flew right out the door. And, and when, when I read writers that are important to me, that matter to me, they talk a lot about, you know, operating on remote control, something taking over my body. I didn't paint that. I didn't write that. Yeah. I, I was, I, I'm tapped into the moment, you know? And, yeah. and, it's, and it's very similar to altered experiences, to psychedelic experiences, to right. hallucinogenic experiences, where you suddenly tapped into something that's beyond you, and now you're almost operating outside of time, yeah. outside of you know normal uh, boundaries of things. I, I still remember my favorite hallucinogenic experience was uh, having a big collection of, of mushrooms and remember thinking that time does not exist. The world could blow up right now. It does not matter. I am feeling perfect in my non-ness and in nothingness, you know? Yeah, and that's the best way you can explain it with words. Pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much. So I, I don't get or understand how that timepiece works or how we call the things to ourselves. But I do think it's got something to do with the writing uh, piece or that idea of the narrative is in our minds. Like my, my partner pointed out to me that in my UFO experience where I see the burnt shingles and the tree, yeah. she says, but you have, you have no idea that, that that has anything at all to do with. Right, exactly. You know, that, you're just stringing that together. You're you're creating a discontinuous reality of your own desire and pulling these things together in the same way that we wrote the Ouija script. But those two incidences are really weird. And there was another incident we had with the Ouija where we were in a an abandoned graveyard and uh, we were Ouijaing on top of, of this. Of course you War. were. Of course we were. And we're Ouijaing, of course, on top of the World War II vets. Um, uh, piece who's really ah, angry perfect. and pissed off at us and he's like telling us to go to hell and get out of there but the graveyard the reason for the graveyard the reason for the graveyard there is was a uh, you know are you familiar with the residential schools yeah aboriginal genocide you know people took uh, kids took aboriginal kids from their homes and popped them into these residential schools right and told them you can't you know speak your culture can't uh, speak yes, your language yes, that, that happened in in the united states too i mean uh, bureau of indian affairs just right. basically so, yeah ran roughshod Right. So in Sault Ste. Marie, one of the most heinous events of, of, of the Aboriginal schools is an Aboriginal school that burns to the ground, burning alive both the nuns that were running the school and many of the children that were there. And the graveyard we're in is a graveyard that's specific to them. Now, of course, I'm a teenager. I'm very irreverent. I would never go back and do things like this. Uh, you know, nowadays, I have a much greater appreciation for that narrative and for that story and, and respecting it. But when you're teens, you're reckless. Uh, yeah. So there we are in you're the narrative. You're supposed to be. Exactly. And so uh, that's what kids do, right? Challenge reality. And so um, there we are, weeching inside this environment. And all of a sudden, you know, as we're weeching with the, with the World War II vet, all, and he's given us hell, 
all of a sudden a fireman shows up right beside us. Like he's literally standing there. And it's like it's, it, the, the, the graveyard itself is a large fence, a uh, chain link fence that's, that's all around it. And you can hear that uh, fence when it opens and closes. This fireman appears out of nowhere. Over his shoulder, there's a huge fire that's going on. Like somebody has set the forest on fire that's just on the perimeter of where we are. And it's not like a massive forest fire, but it's pretty big and significant. I can see orange glow, you know, going. And he says, listen, you kids need to get the hell out of here. Somebody started a fire. We, we know it's not you. The, the neighbors saw who it was, but you need to get lost. Now, that was a really interesting moment because we felt very unhooked from reality. Like, how, where the hell did that guy come from? And why didn't all, we notice the fire? We didn't hear sound. Or, like, when he showed up, suddenly the world turned back on again. As yeah. if, you know, as, that, as, 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 uh, as Bob, you know, Estes described, it's like somebody flicked a light switch and things stopped. Yeah. And then things started again. Yeah. So maybe there are these, as you say, you know, unhooking from time or kind of connecting to these other pieces Paul relates an incredible story about Mark Twain. You know the Mark Twain dream story? Mm, Where he dreams, I might. He, he dreams about his brother's funeral, him and his brother are working on a riverboat, and he has this dream about his, his brother's funeral where he's in a casket, he's wearing a borrowed suit, and there's these white roses with one red rose that's sitting there. Now, he wakes up from the dream, you know, the next day, very startled, very disturbed. Yeah. Uh, it, it's uh, still in communication with his brother, and they, they get split up, and they go their separate ways. And the next thing he hears, his brother dies in this boiler accident. He gets to town to the funeral room. There is his brother in the, the borrowed suit, in the metal coffin. In walks a woman with a bouquet of white roses and one red rose, lays it down identical to the dream. Yeah. And, and Twain then spends the rest of his time, you know, trying to work on, trying to figure out what, what's going on. You know, how do these things work? And for him, it was tied to what he called mental telegraphy. It was something was being written to him. He had turned the pages of the future and had somehow managed to capture the narrative and pull it towards him. Yes. Yeah, I'd, I'd never heard that, but there are so many examples of the same thing. I think we even talked about one on the show a couple of weeks ago. Yes. Um, and you know what what's the model for that and the the model that's that that's been given to me partially by Dean Radin and and other people I've talked to mm-hmm. is that something that has significance to you will you you can you can erase the time flow by i mean you can erase the time flow and experience things that have specific significance to you um uh, and that and the, uh, you know i guess that's called precognition or whatever but Mm-hmm. Um, as long that's why they took the uh, remote viewers uh, when they did the um, coordinate. Uh, I'm sorry, the uh, was it coordinate? No, it was the, the the regular remote viewing where they it's like picked a place and then they had it blind in a folder and then they had to draw pictures and all that. Then afterwards, they would take them to that place because that seemed to close the the loop. Mm-hmm. It that's got right, better right. results if they took them to the place afterwards. If they didn't take them to the place, it had no meaning for them, so that the uh, the, the the signal wasn't as good, or wasn't you know it 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 had no it, there was there was no there was there was nothing there for their for them to hook onto because it it made no difference to them. Um, it's a lot easier to tell future about things that have some sort of connection to you, and the more intimate, the more you know, that's why there's so many stories of people just like Mark Twain when a, when a loved one dies or has some kind of trauma or something like that, right. they see them in the room or they see what's going to mm-hmm. happen or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. They don't see it, you know, unless you're very gifted. You don't see other people's, you know, futures. Um, so I guess some people can, but you know, like people do psychometry and stuff, but. Um, yeah, it's it's it has it has to do with your connection to the event and not, you know, some magical thing where you can just tell the future. I think it's the the the, the time the what is it called? What would you call it? the time um 
the probability, the time probability wave um, collapses when it's something mm-hmm. that's that's important to you. That's right, and, and you become the center of the of the narrative uh, there. Now, how, how much time do we have left? As mu- as much as you want. Okay, so I've got a, a one last story. Then that's a good segue into flight. Okay, uh, there. Uh, so um, I, I'm wor- I'm working at a bar uh, on the other end of, of town in, in Sault Ste. Marie. My brother has been working at a hotel uh, late at night, and he comes to pick me up at about 2 in the morning, usually after everything closes and I'm shooting pool. And we get into the car, and we have to drive all the way across town. It's about a 25-minute drive to get back to it's a city spread out over a large area. And um, as we're driving back, we're having a very intense conversation, uh, you know, all, all the way home. It's really, really good. And the album that's playing is Bong Waters, uh, Too Much Sleep. And, <laughs> Uh, and, and just at the moment, as we're, we're just nearing this uh, turn uh, towards this one main street, and it's one more turn, and we're at, at my house there. And at that moment, I turned the radio down, uh, I turned the, the car radio down uh, as Bongwater's playing, and I'm talking to my brother uh, about something. And as I'm talking to him, I notice that he's approaching this yield sign. The street ends in a, in a T, and there's a yield, and you, and you turn right. Now, the yield had turned actually into a stop sign. You were supposed to stop then, but it's, it's really late at night, and I'm assuming he's just going to take the turn really tight. But then we go through the intersection, and I realize we're accelerating, and in front of us is somebody's driveway in this huge cube van. I look over to my brother. He is fast asleep. Ah. He's completely asleep. His foot is on the accelerator. I am screaming at him. Now, this is happening in a very, very short period of time, as you can imagine. I'm screaming at him. He slams on the brakes. We've gone through the intersection. We're approaching this guy's driveway. He slams on the brakes at the moment we hit the ramp to the driveway, which is gravel. So we leap up into the air. Our car is leaping up into the air. I can see the cube van coming at me. And immediately, Greg, I'm lifted up into the air and our car begins flying. And what's interesting about our flight path is our flight path actually follows the UFO uh, flight path, but in reverse. So from the top end of the field, now we're heading south now towards where the ice rink was. And then we cross over towards my own uh, house and then we land in the driveway and, and we get out and I go, wow, I can't believe that we negotiated that whole car accident by flying type of thing. And then the next thing I know, I'm back in the car again. We are about to slam into the cube van. I can hear a voice in my head say to me, okay, Robert, this is going to be really bad. We're going to have a really big crash, but you know what? Everybody's going to be okay. And, and it was at a time period in the 80s, uh, I guess, where – uh, you know, you didn't always wear seatbelts if yeah. you didn't want to. Yeah. But that night when we got into the car, as was the habit in our family, if somebody put a seatbelt on, the other person would too, which is what we did that night, yeah. which was a good thing. Mm-hmm. Because that car in that split second after my hallucination, it, it, because my brain could not deal with the reality, the narrative that was unfolding, we slammed into that cube van, totally crumpled and destroyed the vehicle. Both of us walked out completely unscratched. And, um, and my brother... Uh, retreated into silence for the next week. He's so disturbed and disrupted by the trauma of the experience, feeling that he could have killed uh, both of us. Was, you know was what's totally... so perfect, perfect about this? There's a siren. There's the siren. <laughs> oh, okay, now I feel like I've arrived. And, and, and good timing, too, because th- th- it's a good transition into flight. And that was, I guess, the last thing I wanted to talk with you about, is your listeners have heard so much about you uh, getting your license and becoming a pilot and, and flying. And, and for me, flying is such a surreal experience. And yet I also know when I look back at its history, you know, in, in, in society and civilization, and, and you talk about planetary culture, Bruce Duensing talked a little bit about it. I see planetary culture as a bunch of very isolated, lonely people who keep sending signals out into space, hoping somebody's going to notice us and say, hey, 
there you are. And they're going to come and visit and say something friendly to us, you know. Um, but in the meantime. Yeah, well, maybe subconsciously. Subconsciously, we like to think that. But in the meantime, what is happening is human beings are embarking on something that's incredibly, you know, wonderful, this idea of lifting and, and breaking through the bonds of gravity and yeah. being able to fly. And, and then we're taking that flight, you know, even out of our atmosphere and, you know, off into space. It's creating hey, hey, Robert, new if you were of offered, experience. I got one question for you. If you were sure. offered a, a free ride into space, would you take it? You know, I've, I've, I've thought about that question actually before a couple of times. And, and I have to say that my time for as much as I'm a, kind of a bit of a lonely nihilist in my heart of hearts, because I do believe that in this lifetime we're totally alone, you know, where you're always alone. No matter what takes place, we are separate from the realities of all the other people around us. Mm-hmm. But I'm a family, family man now. I have two kids. Uh, I, I've got a, a narrative that unf- has unfolded in my family with my uh, daughter's uh, diabetes that was recently diagnosed. And this weekend is oh, our terrible. anniversary of her diabetes. She was diagnosed last year at Easter time and, and almost died. We spent a, a few days in ICU uh, with it. It was very touch and go heavy duty yeah, trauma. Yeah, yeah. And that trauma has shaken me out of the paranormality world almost entirely. Now for me, things are very grounded in reality, are very much about counting carbs, making sure things are cool. And she's managed extremely well, has wonderful blood sugar levels. Good. And But now things are so, – so that's my new norm. Uh, yeah, there's yeah. so that idea of jumping out into space. Now I would have, I would have done that if you had asked me that, you know, me maybe 15 years ago before we had kids, uh, I would have jumped at that and said, yeah, let's, what, what other narratives are there here on earth? Why not go and experience something? No, I meant take elsewhere. a ride. Yeah. Take a ride and come back, you know, just like, yeah. like Virgin oh, yes. Atlanta, uh, Virgin, uh, uh, uh yeah. space is trying to do. I don't, I don't think there's any guarantees of coming back <laughs> from those. Well, there's like, no guarantees of anything when you do that's anything right. that's, that's right. that so besides I'm, so sitting I'm in the chair. So I'm a low-risk guy now, right, yeah. following some of the traumas that I've lived through. I understand. Some interesting traumas uh, with my daughter, uh, some traumas mountain climbing with my dad, and I uh, watched my dad die in a drowning accident 15 years ago. So oh, God. I'm kind of a little bit more of a low-risk guy now. I kind yeah, of risk-averse. Like to, I, so I would I be too. Very, very much so. Like you talked before about, you know, getting rid of your uh, anger uh, while driving, and, and I conquered that many years ago because the narrative I've sold my brain has been your job is not to have road rage with other people your priority is to get home safe to your family because you earning a paycheck helps them out a lot and they also like having you around sometimes yeah. so sometimes so that's, <laughs> so that's the narrative so my daughter tells me so that's the narrative that I, the dog's the one that loves me the most right he's always there for me uh so that's the narrative i've told i've sold myself is that this low-risk narrative of you know what you got to look after yourself you've got to you got to maintain because i know what it's like to lose a dad and even yeah. though i lost my dad when i was in my 30s i, I would hate for my kids to, to go without that. I know what that that's like, right? So I'm so I'm in a lower so I would never fly. And, and I, even the act of flying, I'm a little bit more scared about than I ever was before. I used to fly all the time, you know, and plane trips with my dad over to Europe, back and forth. And, mm-hmm. and loved those. But yeah. now any flight I do, even a short flight to Sault Ste. Marie, I get a little anxious about it. So that's why I was interested in talking with you about flight, about what's your relationship to being up in the sky and, and, and why do you want to be there? The first thing that comes to mind after hearing you say that is I've got a really a new perspective on why I never wanted to have children. <laughs> there is a subconscious thing going on there where I say it's going to, it's, I would have to, you know, uh, my father told me this. He's, he's, he's still alive. He's fine. He said, um, if you have children, a lot of the stuff you're doing is going to, it's not, it's going to be, you're going to, it's, you're going to shut it down. And yeah. it's very strange to hear that from your father. Cause a lot of parents and, you know, mothers and fathers are like, when are we going to have grandchildren? 
Yeah, they, yeah. They never said that to me. My mom maybe once, and then she gave up on it. But um, yeah, be, and I think the the drive to see, do, experience, and whatever else things was much stronger than saying, "Well, I think I'm going to have some kids." And so when I went, mm. to, you know, when I my first wife, I told her right straight up before we got married. And this is I was in my twenties. I said, I do not want any kids. And this wife I have now, both of them were very understanding. I'm sure it didn't make them 100% happy. But I said, I, I, I don't. I really don't want ch- children. And I think it's because things like this. And then in 2006, I started paragliding because, I, you know, one, I had the money to do it at the time. And two, I took a like a test flight with somebody. And it was the first time I'd ever been flying where I, I had no idea about What's going to happen? How safe is this? I was completely in the moment of this is amazing. I'm wow. I'm above the earth. It, mm-hmm. was, it was at the Salton Sea, which is down here in Southern California, um, big big giant body of water, uh, inland uh, sea. I don't know how to explain. The other things people ask you, why do you fly? And I said, well, d- when you were a kid, did you like to fly? And they said, yeah. Who didn't? I say, I that never left me. And the third thing is, and I don't, I, I don't know how to explain this any better. If I'm in an airplane or a paraglider by myself and I look down at the ground and I see my shadow and the shadow is traveling over everything, it, it's not, a road is not, it, it, it has no boundary. Mm. A road doesn't stop me. A fence doesn't stop me. A bunch of people yelling at me doesn't stop me. Um, the shadow, the shadow I'm casting just shoots straight over all that stuff, and it's like a religious experience to me. It's a, what's, sh- you know, it sounds like total human freedom. I think that's what it is. Another thing that happens when I'm flying is, and this is it's only happened once with an uh, airplane, but with the powered paraglider and paragliding, every mm-hmm. once in a while, for no reason whatsoever, I start laughing uncontrollably. <laughs> I start laughing uncontrollably and, and I tear up and my, my eyes start to hurt because I'm crying from being so happy. That's wonderful. And I never know when that's going to happen. It just happens every once in a while. I'll just be flying and suddenly I'll just go, ah, and then it starts going. <laughs> well, that sounds like pure joy, uh, what you're describing uh, there. And, um, and I think that the images that you're seeing as well, too, must be extremely powerful. I know I, I love being in a plane and looking down and seeing this, this whole new the world in a whole new way, you know, in a whole new, new paradigm. And, and I always thought that the images from space, you know, of seeing, you know, the Earthrise shot and those pictures, yeah. I, I thought those pictures would have changed, you know, humanity to be, uh, become something different, that we would celebrate the idea of the Earth, maybe see our, our fragility and our connectivity mm-hmm. to each other. And, and unfortunately, we didn't buy that image. I you guess. know who it affected? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The only you people know? it affected were the astronauts. <laughs> on a profound level. But, although whenever I see that image, you know, I feel a little teary and, and a little emotional, you know, like okay. that's I mean, that's, on that's a, a really deep level, because there's a there's a there's a uh, a phenomenon, a phenomenon that is known with astronauts. They a lot of them had this experience, maybe all of them. I mean, look what happened to Edgar Mitchell. Yeah. Like, when they had this experience, they, they none of them can put it in words except for it's like I look down and I see everything. And I see how small it is, and I see basically how fragile it is. And then I think Joseph Campbell said this. He had talked to one of the astronauts. And I'm, I'm up here, and I'm looking down at the Earth, and I think, what did I do to deserve this? Hmm. I mean, that's the only thing, that's, only, that's the piece of language I came away from 
you know, hearing. And maybe that applies to anybody that's up in the air, but uh, flying. What did I ever do to deserve this? This is this is mind blowingly amazing. I don't yeah. want drugs anymore. I don't. Mm-hmm. Want, not that I ever did. I'm not an addictive type of person, but it just. It, I I can't explain it. It's it's you know that little quote at the end of the emails I sent to you. Yes. Most people think the sky is the limit, and the, for people who love aviation, the sky is home. When I'm in the yeah. air, I feel like somehow that I'm back where I'm supposed to be for a little while. Well, that's very powerful because I, I, I don't know how many people get an opportunity to experience that. I know for me, it's, it is about going back to Sault Ste. Marie, and it's about going out into the woods. And, and even though being out in the woods and on the water was where my dad died, still to me, that that is home. That is the place I grew up in, uh, being in nature, being surrounded by uh, water and, and woods and trees. And, and for me, that's, that's, that's what home feels like, is, yeah. like that, is that space. Yeah, in San Diego where my parents are, that feels like home too. Uh, but the flying thing is is a real different personal home, I guess. Right. Yeah. I was just like, well, this is. I don't know. Maybe I'm. You know, maybe it's a reincarnation thing, or I have no idea what it is. But it just it, there there is a pull there that I can never get away from, and it's wonderful. I mean, did you see the interview that they put? They had posted an interview that Harrison Ford did with like Barbara Walters years ago, right? After the after this accident, they posted this interview somewhere, and I was watching it. He said, I do the acting so that I can keep flying. And I completely <laughs> 100% understood what he was saying. Wow. He said, I like, you know, profound. the acting's great and all that, but I do it so I can get the money so I can do the flying more. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I... Kudos to you, brother, for having such great, powerful experiences up in the air and being able to to feel that personal joy. Because not a lot of people get to have that experience in this life. I just read an article where it said um, that some somebody was talking about what do you spend your money on. You know, uh, what about this consumer thing that you and I have been talking about a little bit? Mm-hmm. And the point of the article was, and it's it's pretty obvious to. A lot of people that who who have found something they really like or have the, these priorities. The if you spend your money on things, you become used to that thing, and it be, doesn't become that important after a while. But if you spend your money and your time on experiences, those just stick with you, and you can talk to people about them, and you can remember them, and you can repeat them in different ways. And you know, travel is like that. Or, or you know, anything. I mean, there was a picture of a guy actually paragliding in the article. <laughs> but the the point of it was experience. If you choose to spend your discretionary income on experience, people tend to have a lot more. Um, their lives are richer. They're happier. Um, you know, should that be a priority now? You know, in Europe, there's there's a high priority placed on people. You know, in France, Germany people taking a month off every year to do whatever. Mm-hmm. And it, it's the, and they realized a long time ago that the, having this experience of doing another thing for a while or something different is very important. It's true. It, it keeps uh, sanity and it gives you opportunity to encounter new stories and new ways of being. And it, it enriches your own narrative in ways that perhaps you didn't understand the possibilities of what you could be or, or what you could do with yourself. Yeah. Is there anything that just like pulls you that you can't really, you know, you, you can't help it. You just do it. I mean, besides what we're doing right now. Yeah. 
Um, uh, I would have to say uh, growing things in the backyard. The house that I moved into, uh, we bought the property. It was pretty much a grass yard front and back, and, and I've totally obliterated that. I've got about maybe 30% of my lawn left in the backyard, and the rest I've been doing is growing uh, trees uh, there because the guy we moved into next door was this crazy, wacko artist-looking guy. He turned his backyard into a forest. He had all sorts of weirdo <laughs> sculptures in there. We thought, this guy is completely off his rocker. Let's move in here because we can do whatever the hell we want. And, and he ended up becoming, you know, I, I moved in and the summer that I moved in, my dad died. And the following winter, his sister died. And she was Canada's foremost uh, anti-nuclear activist. And he was himself a brilliant environmentalist and ran the Arboretum here in the town uh-huh. uh, I live in. And him and I bonded very closely. And he taught me how to uh, grow trees from seed. And he shared his huh. dreams with me where he dreams about plants. And so I spent a lot of time uh, in the garden and in the yard and, 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 and working with growing things is what yeah. I would describe it yeah, as. Yeah. And, th- and that's my, my personal addiction, I would say, is that. That's amazing. I mean, I, you, I don't talk to too many people that when, when you ask that question where they go, oh, yeah, and they just come right out with it. <laughs> and I think, you know, what we're talking about earlier about narratives and, and stories and things we use for ourselves. If you don't have a story for yourself or a, or a through line or something, you, you're, that's, too, that's really horrible. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And I don't even know if I have mine, but there's things I know and the people, friends of mine that, that you know, your friends too. I mean, they, they, they want to hear about it and they have their own thing that they want to tell you about. And sometimes it's the same thing, you know, and that's even better. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sorry we're not talking about UFOs anymore. That's but this, okay. This shit's it, important too. <laughs> yeah, no, this is well. This is real life, right? This yeah. is uh, you know the the UFO piece is a very surreal uh, narrative that's very hard to pin down. But talking to people about their lives and what moves them and their their day to dayness and how they kind of manage uh, their bliss, uh, I think that's where it's really at, right? Yeah. And you know, and, and the other thing I realize is that we're we're talking. I'm going to put this up online, and people are going to hear it and. And maybe that you know that that's that's a little piece of the the, the puzzle or whatever too. Voice preservation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I, I've many times the there was one point in my life where I thought I was going to kill myself. In fact, more than one. Sure. And at that point, I encountered something that made me not want to do that, and that was very important to me. And I told the person that 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 it affected me that way, and he said, "Oh yeah, okay." It's like no big deal to him. <laughs> It was Robert Anton Wilson, actually. Right. That's interesting. Well, well, and you're a very fortunate character. You know, you've managed to contact a lot of interesting, unique voices in our culture, and, and you know, and, and Anton Wilson being one of them. And, and so you've really had some unique opportunities to kind of get some really insight into a wide range of, of thought and how to be in, in this world. And it's not easy, I think, to be in the world. Uh, you know, no, I, I know it's, pain it's, is it's, relative. It's tough, tough thing. It, it is a tough thing, and, and I think we – because we do live – I do see our, our lives as kind of one long controlled hallucination. I think the way that we live in, <laughs> yeah. in North America, consumer culture is completely surreal and, and screwy, and everybody's just pretending it's something else. And that's why Lynch's movies do make sense because underneath the, the, the veneer of society is, is horror because of the way that we live. We live in really uh, falsely constructed manners. We're not in the tribe. We're not in the collective. We're not sharing our dreams with each other. We don't tell our stories. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, we're, we live in isolated uh, spaces. And so to me, then the, the, the abduction, you know, kind of narrative fits very squarely uh, inside of that mm. uh, there because it's just one other nightmare, one other horror of us being abducted from our homes, taken away our, our worst possible fears, you know, and, and they exist inside of our suburban neighborhoods and they invade our bedrooms. Yeah. You know, and, and that's where that story comes from uh, there. And it's because there's other parts of our lives that are deeply missing. And those are profound parts of our, our lives. Yeah. And you know what? I, th- I think we should emphasize here too. And I think we already have that what you're saying and what I'm agreeing with is not that people aren't being, you know, we're not saying people are not abducted by aliens and they all made it up. And it's just because of all their psychological problems. That's, that's not that's, what's being said at all. What's being right. said is that it's very important to understand it, accept it and see where it leads us without without provi- without imposing a narrative upon it that's right yeah well people really want the answers and i thought that's what was very profound about the duensing episode is you know people want simplicity they want the answer they want yeah. to say all of this means this and that's not how it goes down uh, no. things are much more complex than that people are more complex than that uh being alive in the 21st century is much more complex than that and so you yeah. can't say all is ever one thing there's a lot of stuff going on well it's tough with the ufo thing because it's not something ever the people the the funniest thing i ever heard was somebody said well if if all this stuff and it's been said before if all the abduction stuff was presented in a court of law it would be an open and shut case i was thinking no it wouldn't (laughs) because nobody agrees upon that reality that's right only a few people agree on that as you've got me saying now that narrative Mm mm-hmm Everybody agrees on the murder narrative and the robbery narrative and the whatever else narrative because everybody knows that stuff. It's happened. It's happened to a lot of people. And it's very easy to quote unquote reproduce. The abduction thing is not. That is very much open ended, and it's really hard to get people to. Um, it's hard to get myself almost to, to keep that open ended. Well, and, you know, because some, some, we're trying to make sense of, of reality through our, our sensory apparatus and yeah. through our history of images, uh, you know, I, I like this quote from Peter Rogerson. I read this today on Magonia, and he wrote uh, at the end of an article, we are the dreamer and the dreamed. And, and he was talking about, you know, these unique UFO images as, as being things that are bridging a gap between this technological future that we're approaching mm-hmm. and this other kind of historical uh, past, you know, where we were kind of primal and savages and, and things like that. And, and you're seeing, you know, people try to re-script society into that primal space all the time. Camille Rouge, we talked about as an example, yeah. look at the modern day terrorists. The terrorists are taking lessons from the, uh, the art of savagery, which is you do profoundly terrible, terrifying things. When you show up in a town, everybody's afraid. They've forgotten their old narrative. You can write whatever story you want. And, and I think we're on this kind of tension line between that kind of who we are as, as a human being and what our drives are yeah. versus this technological future, which is a very unknown, uh, very inexplicable. And, and there's a lot of people who write about the UFO experience as being uh, almost, you know, us calling that technological future into existence, you know, and, and, and trying to negotiate that psychologically because it's a profound event that's shaping the collective. Yeah. You know, what, what, what is, is the UFO thing us telling our own, like we were talking about before, telling our own future, mm-hmm. <laughs> but we mm-hmm. don't quite know where it goes because there's a, there's an infinite amount of futures around. There sure are. And unfortunately we've, we've pigeonholed some of them into things that do not reflect the spectrum of what they could be, which is, um, what I, I, th- I think we're fighting against here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Well, this has been an exceptional conversation. Should we uh, bring it to a close? Yes. <laughs> I don't want to keep you up any later. I know I've, I've kept you up late. And Robert has uh, graciously agreed to be on live. And we held it for a while because um, I said, oh, we can, re- we can pre-record it. That's no problem. Yeah. And I think you preferred to be at live, too. And the I other really thing, did. I wanted yeah. it to kind of be left open-ended that way and, and spontaneous and to see what would unfold because you're such a great conversationalist. So I was looking forward to that live experience. Well, I, I hope I held up my end of the deal by, by uh, listening enough. Sometimes I don't think I listen enough. Oh, and, you're uh, exceptional. You're a great guider of conversation. Oh, thank you. I, w- I was not fishing. <laughs> <laughs> and um, obviously, since we're now we're, you know, an hour and 25 minutes into the, or two hours and 25 minutes into the conversation, yes. you have to come back. Well, that's really <laughs> right. I would love to. I would love to. It was great uh, conversing with you. I, I thoroughly enjoyed myself. And thank you so much for uh, the opportunity of having me on, even though you've only seen me from just the few things I posted here and there. No, I mean, you see what people say and you can infer a lot about what's going on with their mindset. And it's really exciting to me to find somebody whose mindset is is truly curious and not where they're just saying, well, I'd really like to know about these things. Cause a lot of people say, I'd really like to know about these things and they've already got their mind made up. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I, I think I do that too. I try to guard against it, but then you see somebody else that's doing the same thing. It's like, let's keep this as open-ended as possible as we possibly can being, you know, humans with the brains we have and what we've been talking about here. And you're doing that. And that's why I wanted to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, uh, Greg. I really enjoyed myself. Okay, uh, I got that bong water queued up for you. Perfect. Thanks thanks again so much, Robert, and, l- and we'll talk again soon. Indeed, great. We'll talk right. to you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Absolutely amazing. It was such fun. I mean, it, it, you, I keep thinking every once in a while, why am I doing the, still doing this show? And now I know why. Uh, over the past few conversations, the past few shows, yes, yes, I, I do know why. I hope people enjoyed listening as much as uh, I did talking with Robert here. And uh, here's the song he uh, requested, uh, Too Much Sleep by Bong Water. Let's see if it works. Yeah.
because he stops growing when he gives up. And he will give up if the obstacle is too big.